Welcome back to We Want More, the Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality fanfiction analysis podcast, a subsidiary of Doof Media Incorporated. Today we are doing the book two retro with our special guest, Cron Oblivion. Hello. And this is take two. We're going to publish the outtakes of me and Brian talking for no, 10 minutes to did. nobody. My fault. Really, really funny. I apologize. You're great. The legendary no apathy in Brian's voice when he says something twice. We're going to get to <laughs> test that theory. Why Brian can't tell a joke because I've heard it before. Yeah, this will be. This it was only ten minutes. We're in good shape. So, Cron, <laughs> um, you are the 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 guy responsible for the awesome subreddit mega threads yeah. every yes, week that come out for these, which honestly is like one of the most flattering parts of doing this podcast for me. Um, I know that like you're not doing them just for the podcast. Like you're, I think you're enjoying the excuse to have a a large write about the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk about the podcast a lot, which is a lot of fun. So. Uh, it's, it's the largest amount of feedback and the only one I reliably go to, to look at everything. So yeah, it's not, pretty hardcore. Yeah. It's, it's great. Actually, honestly, I'm, I'm not even all caught up. It's gotten yeah, so out of hand. I thought it's going to be, a I know now who you're like, you're like, Oh my God, I can't catch up. Yeah. Like I don't, okay. I, I'm not sure. I, don't, I, I can't keep pace with the podcast at this point. So yeah. Uh, last one was three hours long. It's our new longest episode. So <laughs> oh God. it'll give some people something to listen to. We were just talking about, uh, how hard it is to find time to listen to podcasts these days because none of us travel anymore. Oh yeah, let me lead us back in with uh with you, Kron. So I was curious about uh I guess when you came across the book, um, what you enjoyed about it, what you took from it, why you keep keep coming back to it, and uh yeah, we'll just take it from there. All right. Uh well I first discovered my first memory of methods is stumbling across the T V tropes page somehow. And I remember seeing the cover of like the three generals and their army and farms and Quirrell in the background. And also the uh, big uh, quantum Hamiltonian quote that you have pointed out on this podcast. And it is the, it is the biggest like hook. And I was really confused. I didn't uh, start rating then, but I know I think it was, must have been like a couple weeks later. I kind of found it again and decided to give it a, sh- a, tr- a shot. Uh, then very quickly, it uh, definitely caught me. Chapter six is uh, Harry's ominous resolution to figure out the root of magic and kind of just like totally take over the setting, and that definitely uh, that definitely caught me. That was a moment where I was like, okay, I'm obviously reading this until the end. Yeah. And- was there at the time? Was there any other? Uh, I was going to say Harry Potter fan fiction, but any fan fiction at all that tried to do this sort of explicit science magic cross? Not that I have. Not that I had read. I had. Definitely reading yeah. a lot of fan fiction, but there's nothing uh, like this that I've ever really found before. And like uh, one of the notable things that Method Stone for is kind of just creating the genre of rational fiction. And like this is the reason the subreddit for like the R Rational subreddit exists because this is like uh, me and a lot of other people. Are like, how can we find? How can I find more stuff like this? Oh yeah, I should mention that we had a an episode on my other podcast, The Bayesian Conspiracy, with um, Daystar Eld mm-hmm. and Alexander Wales. Yes, yes, and both uh, excellent writers. I was trying to make sure. I... Yes, absolutely. And we talked about the two variants, the two I guess chief variants of rational fiction. So like, one of them is like this, where it has rational characters and aims to teach rational or teach the methods of rationality in some way and others are where where it just has rational characters and it's not more it's not really about teaching you unless you're going to try and learn from the protagonist and my favorite example of that um is especially because it's so quick and just it's so awesome i told brian last week we're going to do at some point a uh like a 
side pro- or not side project, but a, <laughs> a like a wayside sort of thing on this on a metropolitan. Oh, man. absolutely. Yeah, it's it's so it's not about like teaching you how to be rational. It's just like, all right, if Lex Luthor was smart, um, how would the story go? And if like, uh, did you happen to see Brian? Uh, what was it? Dawn of Justice. Uh, what is that? I, That's the Batman familiar. versus Superman movie. Oh, I can't remember. I don't think I've seen all of them. I can't remember if that's the one I saw. It, it was I, forgettable. I can tell you it was so memorable. I watched that, that trailer, and my first thought was, there is not a chance in hell that this is going to be anywhere close to Metropolitan Man. Oh, yeah. But what I, the, the only parallel that it has is that Batman has this line that if there's even a 1% chance that he you know, could turn bad or something, I'm paraphrasing, Like we need to take this very seriously. The line in the movie is actually way less good, but that's bas- that's basically Lex Luthor's position. It's like, yeah, sure, he seems nice, but if he if he had a bad day and wants to kill everyone, there's literally nothing on earth that can stop him, and so it makes him very sympathetic, even though he's not a good guy. Definitely. So yeah, that's that's another example of rationalist fic that is less to put words in Brian's mouth preachy <laughs> <laughs> than than methods, but um, very much enjoyable nonetheless. Uh, Let's see. So well, apparently my go-to word is douchey, <laughs> which I wouldn't have been able to tell you that except that other people have informed me. But no, nah, other people are idiots. I mean, I, in, pol- in all politeness to everyone who listens, like, like the whole, we talked, uh, uh, yeah, so we lost a few minutes of audio at the beginning, but we mentioned before, like this, this isn't, uh, if Brian doesn't agree with everything that everyone says, like that's kind of the point. I, I wanted somebody who hadn't read it, who wasn't already, you know, soaking in the Kool-Aid of rationality stuff to get their take on it. <laughs> and if not everything lands perfectly, that's totally fine. Um, you know, oh, no, I, 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 I want people I think... to enjoy it. I want people to listen and have a good time. But like, there's no sense in shitting on Brian for not loving every part of the story that you like. Believe me, I like this story a lot. I wanted to do a po- whole podcast about it. Um, it the, the the parts where our, our readings don't align or where we like draw different um, meaning from different parts is like part of the value of doing it this way. So... Maybe I'm talking about old man think, yells at clouds moment. <laughs> I think part of I think we one thing I was saying in the in the lost recordings um, was that that the I think a lot of the vibes because this was a book born it was, it was so it was kind of like born in Reddit like the Reddit subreddit was going on while it was still being written. Yeah, the Is Reddit. Yeah. yeah, the subreddit was was popular while it was being written. While it was also born because Eliezer already had uh, his blog less wrong at the time, so yeah. he, he had some. Not sure what the readership is on that. I want to say in the many tens of thousands, if not in the low hundreds. Yeah. Um, so like the so the online vibe I'm experiencing as we go through this, just like on Discord, um, is probably is like fairly similar as far as just like personal interactions with stuff. And so I think that's sort of like as set like the middle bar in there of like you know where's like being overly nice and where's being overly douchey uh, is you know set to Reddit. And so somebody coming in and be like, you know, me being like, wait, wait, he sounds like he's being kind of a pedantic douche. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like, yeah, he sounds like a Redditor. And, and that's um, why I tell you not to worry about pulling your punches. Like if, if by some <laughs> chance Eliezer listens to this and is like, he's not going to turn it off because like that guy's being mean to my story. Remember, he published this like, shit on Reddit. He has heard it before. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But I, that's, and I said that before, like it's always in the back of my head. Like anything I say here is recorded for posterity and I have to be able to like at some point know that there's a possibility I'm going to get an email or a chat or just something from Yudkowsky at some point. And I'm going to have to own the thing I said. And be like, yeah, I said that. So like, try not to be a dick. 
Um, but that's kind of the same, like the, and that's what I was thinking about specifically is like that, that whole like online behind a keyboard dynamic where suddenly everybody's like their own worst version of themselves because of lack of eye contact. I mean, um, and that, that's kind of the, like that, that's kind of the underlying vibe that's like, I mean, like, oh, he's kind of a dick. Like it's that, that's, that's how that happens. I wouldn't lose too much sleep over it. Yeah. What were you going to say? Uh, I mean, the heyday of the subreddit as the story was going on for me is like, you can never really recapture that. Cause that like just the act of like participating and all the theorizing and analyzing people were doing, trying to guess where this would go because we knew mm-hmm. that there were answers hidden somewhere in the text. Like that was, that was one of my favorite memories of this. Was there anything, did you, did you get the sense as it was going on that there were things that were like, that got into the story that were, not created, but that like the interactions going on in Reddit turned into stuff that became part of the story. Was there any, I mean, or that it like, like influenced tone or like the direction the plot went or just, anything? I don't think in the way that you mean there, there is a couple of parts where, uh, someone, uh, makes a, like a super minor prediction or, uh, so, something else like that. And then like Yudkowsky would be like, like this is canonized now. This is going to be in the story. It's just like a, a fun little idea for something in the background. That's that just yeah, kind of funny. Cool. But my favorite, and I can't talk about it yet. But there was a bit way late in the book, and someone had commented like on the post on Less Wrong where the chapter was posted, or like the discussion thread over there, and they had said, "Oh, what if this?" And then four years later, he responds. He's like, "That was a great idea," but he didn't. <laughs> he didn't want to, you know, reply to it before then because it would have shown where the, where part of that story was going. But yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I was there for the heyday in March of 2015 oof, when, oof, yeah, the, yes, when the book was wrapping up. Absolutely. And that was wonderful. Yeah. That's what kicked off our local rationalist meetups was uh, um, we had the, uh, there was like a rap party for the book. And since Inyash lived in town and was a, you know, a local celebrity for doing this in the community, uh, we had, I don't know, like 30 people turn up and probably a third of them still come every month for the meetups. So uh, it Oh, is he doing the audio? Cool. I thought the, so the... The book wasn't finished when Inyar started the audiobook? Nope. No. Um, he started, I think, right after, I don't know, chapter 60-something or 70-something. And that meant that he finished the book, the audiobook, a couple of times. Because then there was like a burst where he started writing again, you know, in 2013 or something. And then he would go back to doing methods. But he did other short stories um, or, you know, chapters of other things or this and that. Yeah, it got, uh, I know it got a lot harder to write this story as, like, when a bunch of other people and he started taking it a lot more seriously and he had to like close things out now instead of just like uh, opening things. Like, and that made it, that slowed things down a lot. I know. Yeah. It, it, I think it got wild. Let's see. Uh, what, um, oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. I mean, there are there's a couple more. Yeah. The audiobook uh, is the best completely. I love it so many times. Uh, and yes, I have, uh, I believe you. Uh, I believe we haven't asked this yet on this recording. Oh yeah, we forgot to rave about the audiobook and whatever else. Uh, yes, say. I, I have. Uh, I'm pretty sure I have read the story about eight times. Most of that is uh, most of the, that is just purely audiobook because it's really. I found it really easy to read, and I well, after a while, it. I realized that if enough time had passed that I couldn't remember like beat by beat the entire story, then I would, I was like freshly enjoying the ride the whole time. And of course, like all the foreshadowing means that I can notice so many new things with every reread. So there's always something a little bit fresh. Yeah, it's great. I, I had the fun experience of listening to the audiobook a bunch and then meeting Inyash 
some years into it and now we're friends and we hang out all the time and it's and we have this other podcast and yet so like in my head i i picture like he's still kind of like i don't know the uh the harry potter voice in my head sounds like mm-hmm. inyash and I think Brian has the has the reverse side <laughs> of that the coin, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, I know, that's okay, the, like yeah, and I've I know taken this like, guy. I've taken like three or four runs at the at listening to the audiobook. and it is. I'm like, it is really well done. Like everybody raving about it is, it's totally justified. But yeah, I keep listening to it, and it's even. And I'll like for a minute or two, I'll be like kind of going on and be like, no, that's Eniosh. Sorry, <laughs> I can just like all I can picture is him eating pie. Yeah, because you guys have <laughs> book clubs at uh, Denny's. Uh, Village Inn, which is now Village closed. Inn. Can't imagine what that's oh, yeah. like. It's basically Denny's. It's basically Denny's. Can't imagine what Inuyasha eating pie is like. It's it's about as exciting as it sounds. Although it's rarer than it sounds. He's not a, <laughs> he's not a big sweets person. Um, so anyway, this isn't an Inuyasha podcast. Although it can, <laughs> although it can be. A there second will guest be star. a meta, 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 meta. That's right. But we, we, you know, we do need to pay him a lot of, of credit because, uh, like we mentioned on the, the, the lost recordings of Atlantis, um, the, this, this is on his feed that he ran the whole audiobook on, did all his other audio projects on, and he had retired it, um, largely, I think, because, you know, he was more or less out of stuff to do with it. And, uh, after I, I had the idea to do this podcast for a while. And then when it got going, or got about time to get going, I'd ask like, "Hey, can we jump on your feed?" So, anyone and who didn't unsubscribe after he did his multi thousand audience that he just handed us, I think that's a good a good chunk of it came from the people yeah. who didn't unsubscribe when he mm-hmm. like he did like a farewell episode and everything like he did just pod fade as they call it. Um, he you know officially did a sign off. So if anyone uh, didn't unsubscribe, they immediately started downloading these, which is cool. But you know, I think part of the reason we have some listeners is like this is you know it's five years old now it's been wrapped up but people still enjoy this i'm never um, deleting this podcast it's, uh, for my app so i'm always gonna see this stuff nice yeah i i never unsubscribed either even me who now the only thing coming out on it is stuff i put on it so um for now mm-hmm. we'll see yeah and i mentioned before too that my uh i i'm somewhere around five or six reads on this probably and four or five of those are on well i don't know whatever i would say two-thirds of them are uh audiobook i think i've read the the text twice and then you know i guess individual chapters that we read back when they were coming out um you know towards the end of the book and stuff but uh yeah most of this has been been audio because it's just it was well you know well done there's a lot of good opportunities to listen to audiobooks and and all that so anyway i think we got a little sidetracked so um found out on tv tropes dived in, got hooked when Harry made his ominous resolution where thunder and lightning was, you know, completely failed to uh, clap in the background, which the part that I liked about that, and that's what set it aside for me, was like, he was a trope savvy protagonist. Um, You know, if TV tropes was around for Harry Potter in, uh, you know, in his home life, he would have been an admin on that website, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) So he, he, he's, trope aware and that he can you know he'll call things out and be like oh yeah sure like that's not going to be dramatic irony or whatever um and it 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 toes the line of being like it's not fourth wall but it's like you know uh no, there's i not, think there's quite a bit that's that's fourth wall but in a good way like yeah it's not yeah. like there there it's like not a direct like deadpool style look at the camera and and wink that would be but bad would it's as that. close as you can get yeah that that would kind of suck me out of it too um it's but there there's a level of self-awareness to it that 
you don't really find with a lot of other stuff. There is another fan fiction. Um, I think it's the other than recursive fan fictions of this. It's the only other Harry Potter fanfic I've read called uh, Harry Potter and the Natural Twenty, and it's he's not a it's not a rationalist fan fiction. It's the the protagonist is a Dungeons and Dragons character who got teleported to the Harry teleported to Hogwarts, and he still operates on experience and hit points and. Um, his, his, his school of magic system. I'm trying to put together, I'm like, what does natural 20 mean? Uh... Yeah. So he's, he's a D and D character and it is, it is hilarious and wild. It went on, I think through like book three and then kind of just tuckered out. Um, but it was a lot of fun while it lasted. And that's another one where like that one was totally self-aware cause he, he knew that he's like, oh, okay, cool. So this is the kind of story that I'm in now. Cause you know, this character had been in a lot of apparently D and D campaigns. Um, it, it's really a, a wild kind of diversion from ordinary fiction um anyway i'm talking too much what did you tangents it's me it, I, i'll, I'll well, take and, well you know what it's it's and i make 70 like, no effort me. to pull you back because i think this is basically just a recording of tangents yeah it's so. it's 70 percent me um but seriously if anyone's gonna be tangenting it, it should be you so um go ahead and keep talking about <laughs> the book as much as you want and whatever uh whatever you want to talk about you you can dive into. I can prompt you with questions, or you can just uh, go nuts. I'll just go nuts. I have a very loose outline in my head. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, got caught up at about chapter eighty seven. Stayed up, stayed there until the uh, final arc, which was definitely one of my fondest memories of just going through the final arc with subreddit. Uh, the things I like about the story, I, I it was kind of hard, kind of pinning this down in my brain. But I think one of the reasons I, I definitely have to give credit to how much uh, personal impact it had on me, uh, th- both this story and the author's uh, sequences essays were one of the big first steps for me in uh, becoming an atheist. Because before, there was a, I had a very lukewarm Christianity uh, before this, and uh, this story in particular pointed out a lot of things that I noticed before and some things that I hadn't really quite been able to put into words yet, uh, which kind of just made me a lot more skeptical of things and eventually just uh, totally leaving. Nice. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. not... Uh, I don't think that's a, an uncommon yeah. um, like jump that people get from this, which is kind of cool. Yeah. that. So my, par- my parents did me the solid of raising me godless, <laughs> so you know, I was, started my parents. My parents did it in like the super vague way where I can't tell you if they have a flavor of Christianity. There's some there's some sense that they believe I think God exists or something. Um, and then, like, when I was around, I don't know, early teens, tweens, I would ask questions about this or that. And, you know, I remember at some point, like, sixth grade, I, which, would have been, which would have been right around Harry's age, I had asked something about, like, I heard in history class that when Christopher Columbus came over, he, he you know, brought Christianity to the Indians or something, which was the very nice way that they color history to 11 year olds. And I was like, wait, so they weren't before that. So they, did they go to heaven? And well, no, apparently they didn't because they weren't Christians. I'm like, well, that's weird. They, did they go to hell? And well, no, no, God's not that, that bad. And they're in my parents' version of Christianity. Um, mm. And, and I was like, well, well, hold on that, you know, th- this doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't they get that? And my, I remember the answer like, oh, well, that's where faith comes in. And I don't think either of my parents are actually like, I think they believe in belief. I don't think they really believe this. Um, and so then I, I developed an interest in, interest in philosophy and was immediately let down with like the, the rigor of argument that to, substan- to, to substantiate religion. And I was like, okay, well, 
I guess there's nothing there. And I went through a few painful years of deconvert, not painful, more just like slow. It wasn't like an on off switch. It was a like an honest best effort to try and find, all right, what are the best reasons people have? And it turns out they all suck. Um, you know, by all means, if anyone is a believer, I, I, I'm happy that you have, uh, that in your life. I just, it, it was never a, um, it was never something that I was able to, to get into when I tried to like, think about, okay, well, what if, uh, um, I wanted to justify my belief in this. There wasn't really anything for that. Um, so anyway, again, not shitting on religion, just, just talking about. It does seem like at least the people I've talked about, the, the strongest, the most militant atheists are the ones that had religion shoved down their throat the hardest growing up. And that's probably no coincidence as to why I'm like, I'm like lowercase a atheist. Um, cause it was just never forced on me. So I'm like, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, atheist by default, I think, is my um, kind of position as well. Uh, like, well, again, not by default, but that's like where I am now. I'm not militant about it. Although I did enjoy those books when they came out in the early 2000s. Um, you know, The God Delusion, uh, oh, the, uh, the what was Harris's book called? The End of Faith. Um, I, I did enjoy all those. I have a big but, reading list to get you know, to I didn't... because I, I haven't read, I have a difficulty uh, reading a whole lot of nonfiction books. Uh, I think Sam Harris did an audiobook of the first two chapters of The End of Faith somewhere in his gigantic long podcast feed, but you can probably find them on his mm-hmm. website. There is an audiobook out there, but it's not that great, and that's why he just decided to read the first two chapters on his own. Um, and Dawkins did do The God Delusion himself, so if you like the, uh, you know, whatever gentle old man British voice, <laughs> it's... <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 it's clear. Um it, it doesn't mumble. He's he's a he's a succinct, a succinct great reader. I like his voice a lot. I'm saying if you enjoy that, you'll totally get a, a you know dig out of this. But um, in any case, uh, sorry. Please go on. We are approaching <laughs> rambly territory already. All right, moving on. Uh, kind of a, a subsection of that is uh, the thing that really gets me about the story is I can f- uh, feel how Yudkowsky feels about these things. Like it's th- his themes about like humanism. And his deep love for science and the universe's mysteries, and this like, especially the part where he utterly up opposed to like all death and suffering, like pro fully pro immortality, and uh, I had never really seen these viewpoints before. I hadn't really seen like in a story like like really earnestly talk about how like great science is, and I uh, and Yukowski's writing was uh, definitely effective enough for me to understand how he felt about this stuff. Uh, which definitely uh, caught on a little bit in my mind. Yeah, I like that. Uh, do you have any particular examples? Uh, let's see. I mean, one, the earliest example I can really notice of, maybe it's not explicitly related to this part, was when he had to cross over into King's Cross Station and the platform, and he felt really dirty for having to deliberately believe in something. That's something I really remember. Oh, yeah. Um, that was fun. He... Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he was convinced that if he didn't believe hard enough, it might not work. And so he's like trying to delude himself as he's running towards this brick wall. Um, what would, um, what, like non fan fiction stuff, what would you say you're most, what genres are you most science fiction, fantasy, a little both? Or, because uh, I'm hmm. good. I mean, science, I haven't read, let's see, science fiction, fantasy is probably a good term for it. I don't have a specific taste that I, uh, that I'm super into, but probably more science fiction. Yeah, because when you said like 
I uh, hadn't read anything that talked about that, like passion for science. I'm like, cause so I to like, and those, these, those different scenes, like I keep saying like that stuff totally works on me. And we've talked about like, I get teared up at like an Elon Musk rocket. Um, but, and I would say like that definitely came from like, I grew up, my, my, my nerd background is largely like hard science fiction. Um, and that totally like that, when I think about that, like that's totally where that yeah i think from. that's a very similar background to uh, yukowski himself because he has a big reading list of the things that turned him into the person he is today and there's a lot of science fiction yeah. of authors that i've never read before but i probably need to yeah Werner vingy i know that yeah. is a, a common name I, and i i haven't read any of those either i'm also just a slow reader i did read the first third of the asimov trilogy and then I have this thing whenever I have to start a new book, I hate memorizing new plots and character names. Like, I don't know what, it, I always enjoy it after the fact. I can't think of a book that I've read where I'm like, well, that was a waste of time. Um, it's just always getting over that hurdle. And so when the second Asimov book started, it's like, oh yeah, and on this side of the galaxy, I'm like, oh, fuck this book. <laughs> Put it down. <laughs> um, I was actually only, I only read like Foundation and I didn't, and I was like, oh, it's like a cliffhanger. I'm like, no, fuck it. I'm not, I'm not signing up for this. Yeah, yeah. So this is a this is a common theme like in all story. his writing because I usually like anything he writes and stuff like his uh, Three Worlds Collide. It's like it's my, it's my gold standard for like what science fiction can be. Uh, so and yeah. like just something about his style of prose like really gets me, but I can't really describe that to you because it's I don't really know how to put it into words. But there's a he can have a really uh, understated style uh, that. Uh, gets really effective sometimes yeah his um it's yeah i'm not an english major either maybe we'll just have to read three worlds collide too bright it's only six or seven chapters so it's a it's a short story about humans in the somewhat distant future uh meeting aliens and then meeting other aliens and things get confusing so and intense and it's also on it? this feed uh elias yudkowski wrote that story oh, too. Also wrote it, okay. yeah that was an original one um not a fan fiction it was just more like a kind of meta ethics exploration Mm. if you're going to take over if you're going to take like a you know what was this book about sort of thing but plot wise it was uh people meet aliens uh people meet other aliens and they have um how did uh harry put it with a sorting hat uh non-converging utility functions Mm. um that's a good summary and an object lesson in outgroups uh no actually no yeah, it's not so much about yeah. that. It, it's it's more just about like okay, we clearly are coming from yeah prisoners dilemma for sure, but also we're mm. like the 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 conflict is like okay, we're all coming from clearly very different places here, and we can't really explain to each other why we think each other are wrong. I mean, we can, but not in a way that would satisfy any of us because our like our our base utility functions, what we want, um, are so different. And what we value are so different that uh, we're just at an impasse. So that's the the conflict of the book. Is this but the part where it, I reel you back also, in? Mas- Is this the part where what? I reel you back in? Okay. Please. Uh, yeah, grab the reins okay. as much as you can. I will be sure to do that. Uh, so that is those are the basics of why I like his writing. Because as, as I said, I usually like anything he writes. Uh, he's, write, he's written a couple of small things. And he is allegedly uh, writing something uh, incognito. Uh, with through a pseudonym, but we don't know what it is. There have been theories, but we don't. We're not quite sure. That's kind of annoying. <laughs> I didn't even know about that. But I'm not going to bother reading everything to try and guess which one is. He his, made a so. Facebook post a long time ago where he said, "I'm I'm going to try writing anonymously, on, anonymously. And if anyone asked you 
Like, if you're me, please tell them you cannot confirm or deny. Just, it'll help me out a lot. <laughs> so, so, theoretically, there is stuff out there, like half serialized stuff. Like, it's out in the public and we just don't know. Yeah, what's I think going. he said that he's seen it discussed mm. on the R Rational subreddit, but that's all that's all we got uh yeah so he's a writer that really gets me and uh puts me in a, a mindset that i hadn't really explored before uh with my upbringing and that's definitely one of the things that uh got me so much and uh moving along to my analysis uh i have uh someone else called it this and i've decided to steal it i've decided to just call it the chronalysis which is much more nice. which is much more specific I wish you'd let me know that trademark earlier. I would have just plugged that every episode. Yeah, I, it was getting annoying calling it my write-ups or my analysis, so I'll just steal that. Chronalysis, yep. it's perfect. Uh, yeah, so after this podcast started, I was super happy because I love this story, and I also love We've Got Worm. So I was like, wow, this is like specifically for me. And uh, after I saw that there weren't uh, discussion threads for it, I posted the first one up and uh, talked to you a bit. And I've been doing that every week uh, since then. And also, uh, right away, I started to just put down my own thoughts. The first post about chapters one through five, I believe you did, was very minimalist compared to everything else. Uh, because that, that was just like really quick, just like get uh, go through like each chapter really quickly. Uh, the chapter six is when I started taking it a lot more seriously. And I started like... Well, part of it was, like, me playing defense, like, in defense of, like, the multiple uh, complete disasters of this chapter. Because there were two. There was the, uh, my parents aren't abusing me, one, and there's the accidentally triggers a shotkeeper, one, and there's the discovered the big Voldemort secret, one. So, that, that got me writing a lot more, and that's where I got into this kind of pattern of writing a lot more extensively about uh each episode and I was, I was kind of following along with like uh your how you split it up for your for the podcast and uh one moment uh as i was saying i started splitting up like that and just like one chapter like chapter seven was still long and i ended up writing like three thousand words and that, this kind of just kept growing this effect i just kept getting like more and more long-winded especially when I started adding a spoiler section to talk about uh, all things with the, the people who have already read the story. So it got it's gotten really out of hand. I didn't mean it to, to end up like this, but at this point, like the level of feedback I've been getting has been has like completely like wowed me and is probably the main reason that I'm really determined to like finish out the whole thing because I really want to like it's been a like it's been a long time since I first read it, and I've read it a lot more times after that. And I did want a place to put down like all my thoughts and like point out all the foreshadowing. Uh, and already, this has uh, done a lot of things for my personal understanding. Like I feel, I do understand the story a lot more. I've gotten a lot more in depth in trying to explain it or attack it from a certain angle. My favorite thing that I've discovered is I figured out uh, the uh, narrative structure of the first week at Hogwarts arc that I was like super proud of uh, and just uh, figuring out why that uh, arc works so much and a few other things like I believe I know Steven you point oh yeah you Steven you pointed out the uh, that Harry did actually 
walk up to Hermione and say, uh, teacher told me to be friends with you. And I had never noticed that before. So that made me really happy. You know, I might not have noticed that until this read through either. And that's what I'm appreciating about doing this podcast is that like, I get to like force myself to take it slow and all right, what am I going to talk about for this episode? Like, cause I don't want to just summarize what happened. And so finding little things like that is, is one of the more like, not necessarily like the more interesting parts. Cause I, I, I more enjoy the dialogue about it, but it's one of the like, the unexpected benefits of doing this. Um, I, I'm curious to hear about your your narrative structure, your narrative breakdown of week one. Oh uh, yeah, so basically, uh, right away, uh, in the wake of the uh, Sorting Hat and, and telling him that he's on the path of being a Dark Lord, uh, and him trying to like examine himself and figure out what's going on, so he can like spit, so we can cut off that entire future path. Uh, Yukowski establishes uh, this pattern of Harry do his, doing something super awesomely clever, and then like a couple scenes later, he gets like slapped down really hard for it because the, he also was being a, a huge idiot and actually kind of made things worse. Like there is the uh, when he saves Neville from the Slytherin bullies, and he gets so mad that he like yanks uh, Neville out really hard from in the middle of the group and uh, like hurts him way more than the, the actual bullies did. And he gets, uh, and then, let's see, also when the other Neville thing that happens, when with the Remember All, where he does a super awesome, clever thing and manages to trick everyone and successfully retrieve Neville's Remember All and get Goyle on the ground so nothing happens and stop the fight. And also he used his, like, super secret time turner to win a bet because that he didn't need to win at all. Uh, stuff like that. And then there's... Uh, of course, there's the Snape chapter where he completely blows up, like, goes full dark side, way worse than anything that's happened before. And he kind of gets slapped down for that, but he does he does mostly win the fight against the Hogwarts administration because uh, Dumbledore kind of, uh, after he realizes like he's, that he's doing this on behalf of the students, he kind of lets him get away with a win. But the... the I was surprised by how much that stirs that that one stirred people up. Yeah, I would. I was going to think like not even divisive because I don't even think people were divided about it. But that like that really like set people off. Oh yeah, do you want to join the the hate? Do you want to grab a torch and attack us, or do you want to join the uh, the gallows with us? Where do you like, or or is or do you want to pick some third option, which is probably you know the important thing we should take away from this? Uh, like, how do you think that things went down with Harry? Uh, was you know you know. Have, you remember some of our back and forth on the, the fallout from us sort of, I guess, taking the side that like it maybe would have been fair for Harry to get some punishment. And people are saying, well, then, no, you're you're endorsing the, the evil system. Um, do you want to just totally pass that by or do you have anything to say about that? Well, OK, I think Harry definitely uh, Snape was obviously super awful. And I, the the ending, the resolution of that whole thing where he has to, where his behavior is like super restricted. That's definitely uh, good for me. But Harry was also a huge idiot. He wasn't acting uh, in the best way he could in order to uh, fight against this. He was acting because he was really angry and he didn't want to lose a dominance contest, which I, I think like Quirrell kind of pecked him really well in the last chapter, just a very specifically identifying his actual motivations. Like just like in the, uh, the remember all scene because his actual motivation that kind of snuck into his planning phase was how do I like do how do I show off how smart I am in front of everyone and win this contest? 
Did that? Did that whole pun? That whole because I mostly it was people like uh, really bothered about the idea of like should he or should he not have been punished? Did that also like stir you up? Because I don't like for me it wasn't even I didn't like necessarily disagree with people very much about like I definitely like you know or like emotionally was like well yeah I could totally get that he should have gotten away with it but I I was more surprised by the number of people and the it seemed like very consistently stirred lots and lots of people up i think yeah did it like did it i think what he what he ended up having to doing of just going up there and saying like okay this is what i did wrong like please don't do that because that was really dumb of me i think that was fair because like what he did was was pretty wrong it's not it's not a thing you want to be in the habit of doing it's not something you want other people to doing i think that part was fair and like whatever like uh i don't i get the argument that it wasn't really an apology because he like snapped his fingers in secret, and then right after this, it, it's revealed that like somehow Harry got Snape to stop being so awful. Mm. But I think the resolution, I was, I was sad, I was basically satisfied with it. I also, like, I also get like how much people hate Snape because, like, people, as you said, people have experience with these kinds of teachers. Mm. I can dig it. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of like the uh, some some of the other. I guess fallout from, uh, like you, like you, I'm having a poor time articulating this. I think one thing that I liked, and it maybe didn't even, I'm sure it solidified previously, but it then melted. Now it's back. Um, the idea that like he didn't do this, you know, he didn't rebel against Snape because Snape was a dick. He didn't do it for, um, well, no, I'm going to challenge this this horrible system. Um, and he didn't even do it for, he certainly didn't do it for like, let me, uh, help all these poor victims. He did it because this guy was mean to me and I'll show yeah. him. And, and that's, that's why it went all the way to the top. Yeah. Um, those reasons aren't all lies. The way- like, I think those are all legitimate reasons in his brain, but like the real motivation for why he blew up that much is because uh, he, because he was being specifically like, I remember reading, uh, this time around, reading that section, I was super impressed with like how precisely Snape like hits every single one of his triggers. Like he dismisses uh, all of Muggle science. He t- he asks like he asks questions that only he knows the answer to to make him look stupid, and he completely ignores any attempts at like uh, reasonable compromise. And I, I I can't help but feel like he was very much doing this on purpose because that's how well he managed to hit everything that harry just absolutely hates yeah it makes me makes you kind of wonder in hindsight like how much uh legitimacy did he do on harry like all right what are his buttons that i can push or maybe you know snape's not an idiot too maybe he just observed the kind of person he was this was what on thursday of his first week or wednesday um so he had a couple days to kind of get the vibe of harry before that and so it could be that he just you know observed uh stories or something about him already or whatever and it's like, all right, I'm going to find these buttons and push them. It'd be one thing for him to say, sit down and shut up. Like, that, that's fine. But, like, intentionally making him look stupid. And it's like, yeah. that, that's Harry's that berserk button, yes. basically, right? And they just played really well as just sort of, like, the greatest hits of, like, how to, how an adult bullies mm-hmm. a kid. Right. Like, it, was all, like, it was just, like, oh, let me belittle the thing that's important. Yeah, so I guess, like, he latches on to the thing that, like, he can tell is important. But it's, it's almost kind of like that just super easy, just like, oh, I found a thing that's important to you, so let me make you feel small for for it being important yes. to you. Yeah, it's like Kramer winning in that karate contest with those children in Seinfeld. And it's like, congratulations, <laughs> I guess. You beat up a bunch of kids. Uh, so like, I, it's it's not clear, like 
you know, Snape just seems like such a dick there because he's getting satisfaction from picking on a child. It's not, you know, it'd be one thing to be like, all right, I'm going to be a dick to everybody. And I, I can kind of get that before I'm deliberate, deliberately seek out to, to, to target one student and mess with him. And it's like, all right, great. What do you get if you win? You made a kid sad? Like, well done, I guess. Um, granted, we, you know, we know that Harry or that Snape has extra reasons to hate Harry. Um, because For very, very mature his... reasons, too. Yeah, very mature reasons. Yeah, totally. No. <laughs> uh, moving on uh, uh, to the uh, the narrative structure I was talking about. So that's like that's one more like Harry does something awesome and then he gets gets slapped down for it. And the slap down is the Coral chapter uh, that Coral himself does most of the slapping down because he directly points out the actual reasons that Harry did all this and why he's an idiot. And like all of a sudden Harry's like looking down and realizing that he has not even come close to leaving the path of the Dark Lord that he like he's been trying to. And then comes the uh, uh, a lot more direct connection from Harry to Quirrell of like Quirrell saying like this I've had this exact same experience before in my life this is how I, this is how I solved it then so we're gonna solve uh, have you solve it doing now and basically it's like it's a uh, underpinning a lot of his actions in this uh, first arc, in that arc is like the f- he has like a minor phobia of. Uh, losing in public that uh, any kind of like public loss where he is not uh, dominant uh, basically as Quirrell says and so let's just do ex- like some really extreme exposure therapy of a of being publicly bullied and not and like the, the big difficulty for him uh, it's partially the humiliation aspect but also there's also the like please like please don't fight back and like because he knows like if he tries to fight back he might actually hurt someone and he's uh, you know he's trying to prove to himself that he can get through this whole awful situation probably worse than anything he'll find at hogwarts and like get through it without like going completely berserk and he does and like after that is like this pure glowing victory and like people actually applaud him and they don't like pity him or anything like he was like he was afraid of and like uh, Quirrell congratulates him and gives him a bunch of a uh, bunch of house points uh, that he had lost, and just stuff like that. Just that's like the mark of like true character growth that he under uh, he undergoes with this arc. This is higher time. Like every time he does something cool, like he gets slapped down for it and realizes like gets becomes more aware of like how messed up he is inside. And this is like the opposite of that. It starts with the slap down and then just pure glowing victory and th- like. That that part still feels just really, really satisfying to me because this is like the first bit of progress, that real bit of progress that he's made like as a character. It doesn't strike you as because like for me, besides like that's now the whipping boy episode of uh, of S and M themes, but like <laughs> away from that, but doesn't it? Because in reality, I associate that with like a like a you know brainwashing emotional manipulation thing between. Quirrell and Harry, but like the way I'm hearing you describe it is, is it like like actual personal growth where I see it as like like him being like molded? Is that did it not? I did it not seem that way? Or even like in retrospect, because you now you know you have oh, the yes, whole book in your head. Um, that's what, well, and then that's what made me wonder is like oh I wonder if the rest of this plays out in a way that like makes those things not seem as kind of like sinister i mean i don't think i ever read it like that even now like when i try to think about that and apply it to harry and Quirrell, my brain just shorts out because it just it doesn't it doesn't vibe with like how i see especially that chapter because I, I do think uh the more i think about it like this 
uh, I do think of it as very intense exposure therapy because uh, Harry is specifically extremely afraid of uh, this, like these situations, and being like being bullied uh, in front of others and making up appearing weak to them. And so this is the very intense expo- like it is like there there is some degree like in the real world in a classroom this behavior is completely ridiculous but there is a level of like okay in in this story this is a really big problem he has and this is how uh and like textually speaking this is how he is made to like grow past it because the like the ending of that whole like awful bullying simulation the exposure therapy is to like kind of sit there and realize that okay number one i'm fine I got through the whole thing and didn't freak out, and uh, no one like thinks less of me for having experienced that. And that like and that was the big like just a, a huge wash of endorphins that he gets after uh, after that whole thing is over. And Quirrell like personally congratulates him. That, that's definitely uh, how I see because this is because after when he's in like the cool down of that in like that one uh, other room. He is extremely proud of himself and saying like this is like this is the first bit of real real progress I made uh, on my anti Dark Lord Harry program. I think what Brian's asking is actually distinct from that because like I, I agree that with everything you just said, and I think Brian's asking a good question that like it is obviously um, well not necessarily obviously but it is uh, reasonably interpretable as um, Quirrell doing this to ingratiate himself with Harry. And vice versa, have Harry ingratiate himself with Quirrell. Like, you know, if, if Quirrell wanted to make Harry lose in public, he could have just said, all right, guess what, Mr. Potter, you're cleaning toilets 12 hours a week for the next three months, and the headmaster has no leverage over me, so you won't be able to get out of this. And minus 100 house points or whatever. Like, he he could have made him lose in public just by doing that, but instead he tells this, this whatever... Um, serious story about how like i was gonna i couldn't find like heart-wrenching but it's not quite that but this this graphic story about how his his martial arts sensei that he went to school with um was ripped apart by the dark lord and uh oh but i guess before that he mentions like yes i learned to lose by being spat upon and now you harry will endure the same and like thereby giving them a, a shared experience um so it's it wasn't just about making harry lose in public it was about like all right we're gonna share this trauma and we'll both be stronger for it. We'll both be stronger in exactly the same way. It is that kind of what you're getting at, Brian? Like that that deliberate? Uh... Yeah, that well, and and that it seems like there's like many like it wasn't there were ulterior motives to it, especially like in the way Kron's describing the like that afterglow, basically. Um, that like that's like lulling him into this lot. Like oh, <laughs> it's still like it's still funny to like turn it into some kind of weird sexy thing but like that but there's an element of like oh he's so dreamy he takes care of me and he says i'm a good boy and take away the sex part of that but that it's like he's lulling him into this like and this is creating this like ginormous blind spot about like he he's suspicious of all kinds of other people but not quarrel even though quarrel's like very clearly saying all kinds of like oh i'm a fascist and like <laughs> all kinds of nutty stuff that ought to be like you know, raising alarm bells. I, I can um, see that. You know, calling Dumbledore a deathist, but not being alarmed that Quirrell advocates murder on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, like, so, th- like, this is part of, like, how, like, and that, so this is, like, the morphine that he's giving him to make him, like, cool with all that. Yeah, I mean, this chapter is, like, the start of uh, their relationship, and not in that way. Uh, 
It's never, never in that way. I never actually yes. believe that. Uh, yeah, this is, yeah. Well, I mean, there's also the part of it where I think uh, reading back on that, there was also parts where he was like deliberately like helping uh, Harry's like reputation, especially in the aftermath of like kind of helping his effects, his attempts to like, because uh, he makes like some moves like towards Slytherin and like congratulates the House of Slytherin uh, for Draco uh, just to satisfy them. Uh, so, they, because they know like he's uh, he's got like a friendship with Draco and stuff like that. Like and there's a, there's a lot of stuff where uh, building off the first class of singling Harry out as the most dangerous student in the classroom, and this uh, definitely further that furthers that. And then there's a conversation after that where he says like uh, I, I think you have an amazing amount of potential that I identified like very quickly when I heard about the bullying thing. And uh, basically, it's like I will like I will uh, make you like a tar- target of my like personal like tutor like attentions or whatever. And that's uh, he he definitely does some things to other things like that. Like the they they talk about science, and even though he's not super happy about a lot of science, he also he also really appreciates like the space program. He doesn't fall into a lot of like wizarding uh, blind spots about the Muggle world. Uh, and just a lot, a lot of other things that really connect uh, these two, because they are uh, uh, they're rather similar people. Like Harry is astounded by how well Quirrell understands him, and that's like, that's one of the big things that uh, uh, that entices him. Because especially after that first class of like him seeing how good of a teacher this guy is, I think it's kind of like what like the the feeling that Harry has for Quirrell must be something like like deciding to go to the gym and like on a regular basis and get fit and strong and athletic. And on, you know, halfway through your first week, you're going every day, you suddenly realize you're sharing a gym with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's like, yeah, I'll take you under my wing and show you how it's done. And it's like, <laughs> are you kidding? Like, holy shit. I get to, you know, I get to be lectured, but I get to be like mentored by this guy. And I think that uh, if you torture that metaphor enough, it kind of fits where like Quirrell has all of the, uh, you know, well, he, he has qualities that Harry doesn't have and doesn't like, but he, he has all the qualities about Harry that he likes yes, about himself. Only more uh, so. This is the one person who, like, totally outclasses Harry in, like, all of his areas of expertise, basically. Yeah, in the domain that he yes. cares about. You know, it's one thing, like, all right, cool. Uh, you know, pr- like, he, he admires Professor McGonagall for other reasons, but he doesn't, like, find her admirable because she's a transfiguration master. Like, because that's not a thing he particularly cares about. Um and in the sense of being like, I guess, uh, clever and, uh, I don't know, insert adjectives, Quirrell has those. And that's why he's so drawn to him. And I, I think I'm, I'm with Brian a bit that like Quirrell picks up on that and immediately starts feeding into it. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. Quirrell found the hole in Harry and figured out how to, you know, fool Harry into thinking that, you know, Ooh, follow me and that will, you know, fill that need. Like, especially because he, like, he makes, he looks to Harry like Harry thinks he could be if he was just even a little more grandiose. Um, Right. So, like, his whole weird, like, he's, like, furthering that delusion that, you know, if you are just perfecter um, and even more better than everyone else around you, you'll you'll be this cool. Yeah, he pretty uh, clearly, like, he sets his expectations of, like, I think, like, I think you've got a lot of potential. I really want to help you... uh, like self-actualized because he talks about a bit about like Slytherin philosophy and that's like very uh, that's very core to his character of 
Uh, he doesn't really care about the ethics involved of uh, Harry becoming uh, a great person. He doesn't care if he's good or bad. He just cares that his the scope of his ambitions is large. He doesn't really care about the direction it goes. If he like if Harry picks something he considers like really minor in scope, then he's offended. But he doesn't really met like the difference between dark and light lord are a little bit trivial to him. So like and he very explicitly wants to uh, nurture that and help Harry uh, become uh, this person that he thinks he could be one day yeah and i think that he um now that i i put the question to or put the thought ahead phrasing the way i did a second ago like after they bond over their shared love of space he's like all right let me do this really taxing spell and show you motherfucking space and i love that scene so much oh it's uh it's classic uh someone wrote a um musical accompaniment for it and then inyash put that in the audiobook um it's it's the inspiration of a lot of fan art. It's great. Um, but Quirrell could have just said, oh, yeah, I like space, too. But instead, he's like, oh, here's a way to, you know, make this kid super impressed. And it works perfectly. Harry walks out of that room thinking he, if it's the last thing he's learns how to do, it's going to be learn how to cast that. Spell. Yeah, I don't want to be friends with like, anyone who doesn't who wouldn't find that incredibly impressive. Right. Um, I want you to should we uh, move in should say we, everything should we you move want past to the book one retrospective into the book two i that's exactly what i was going to get at we're closing in up on an hour here and i wanted to start on with book two which if i can briefly summarize then i am strongly encouraging you to better summarize it's basically like chapter two is called the scientific method it's where like so book two through 37 is basically all right let's start picking apart magic from as much science as we can throw at it and then it does some of the battles. Um, I guess all the battles so far in the book are, are after this, right? So it's um, it it starts setting its own groundwork for like, all right, this is uh, some of the other things this book is going to do. Um, but like I said, pr- primarily it's like, all right, this is the part where, where we do science and where we do the battles. But by all means, uh, take it yeah, from it's, here. To me, it's, it's arguably the least interesting uh, book to talk about because I think it's very, very episodic is what I really notice. Like, there is the, the the Draco arc right away, and there's the Rita Skeeter arc, and there's the Snape and uh, Lesseth Lestrange, or however you pronounce that first name. Uh, partial Transfiguration, the first battle, uh, the underwater battle, and then there's the Christmas break. And uh, especially the early ones are very episodic and very, like, uh, cut off from, like, the rest of it, which is... And there aren't any big Dumbledore conversations, which is a big thing for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me. Um, I guess the first Dumbledore conversation is before that, but we do get one... Uh, you're right. There really aren't any in this one. There's one in one. There are some, one there are some minor conversations uh, when he like cracks partial transfiguration, but other than that, there's no big... like The uh, pretending to be wise right after that is a top-tier Dumbledore conversation. Oh, we can we can peek past book two if you want to talk about that one. <laughs> Maybe extra, if we have right, time, but I awesome. doubt it. By the time we're done with this, well, we can we can we don't have to do this chapter by chapter or whatever. I mean, we can just talk about the big Check thrusts around. of it. Yeah, um, you know, we don't have to. Uh, you know, we don't we don't have a recipe for this exactly. So um, if this if this bleeds a bit into book three, I'm totally fine. Yeah, with I think so. like I don't know. We don't have to be super strict, but take it a, a very vague arc by arc thing. So just to gather the specific conversations uh so yeah first uh arc is the draco arc mostly from his perspective but before that 
uh, right in the beginning of chapter 22, I did really want to talk about. This is uh, Harry's first experiment such a magic with Hermione, and it uh, completely falls flat on his face. And he, he, he spent a month designing this big grand plan of discovering the truth of magic, and then it all gets tossed in the garbage on like the first day. Because he like didn't just test that out first, <laughs> and Harry uh, yes. bias. The Harry bias, like that, the teasing afterwards, the conversation afterwards, it really proves to me like how much uh, each of these people like benefit from their friendship because they don't really have anyone else in their life that they can uh, be like this around. Uh, like Harry, like both of them are extremely intelligent and uh, they're smarter than that are other peers, but they have never had. Uh, appear in both age and intelligence before and like Harry reacts to that and like he is not interested at all in being friends with uh, average kids like you saw that with Ron very bluntly yeah yeah he's not interested uh, I mean they're not interested in the things he's interested in and they they also cannot keep up with them and like the conversations he wants to have and they also uh, get angry if he ever implies that he is uh, more intelligent than they are so he just at this point he's just like really fed up and doesn't really want to deal with it anymore. Like, uh, like Draco is an exception uh, because he can verbally spar with the best of them, and their personalities just get along really well. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Harry doesn't care to talk to anyone. Hermione is opposite. She really, really, really wants friends, but she is like a kind of a nerdy teacher's pet who do- who literally doesn't really know understand how to. Like just talk to another kid without without the context of helping them with their homework, because other than that she has like no clue, and so now she ha- like and like as she says herself in that in her first chapter, uh, she uh, she considers herself a very uh, a nice person, and it's of course it's nice you shouldn't make fun of other people if they do worse than you on a test. Uh, because that's really mean. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, with Harry, like they they actually start the, like their own first legitimate rival academic rivalry with anyone, and uh, this Harry is like the the first person ever that she can like really taunt because like when he makes a mistake here, like she like grinds his nose into the dirt just to make him never forget about what he just did, and he and. Uh, Harry, like he is, he has an endless well of self confidence. So there's absolutely no risk that he, that he's going to actually start feeling bad, and so she can like gleefully taunt him, like as long as much as she wants, like in a way that like she doesn't she doesn't have to be like like restrict herself and be super nice. She could just do that and like it's like affectionate teasing, and he just gets really flustered because he knows that she's right and he respects. He has to respect her intelligence enough so he can't just like rationalize it away because he gets to sit there and take it and just gets really flustered because he knows she's right. And uh, and that turns into like that's one of his happy thoughts when in his Dementor scene that like just having somebody that can keep up with him is his yeah, happy and thought. also just be yeah, be totally almost totally open around. Like he's not totally open, he acts differently with different people, like with Quirrell and with Draco. But this is like this is his like best most healthy friendship of uh, where they like both like like spending time with each other and also uh, uh, she really likes teasing him a lot and he's he, he like he probably enjoys it uh, more than he admits because like this is uh, as again no one there's no one in either of these people's lives that 
can act like this. They can act like this around. So this is the like the relationship is really really good, and I really like it. There was a scene you mentioned because like she she does give him a hard time, but you mentioned because she's she's nice and doesn't like. Uh, I mean, she she has niceness personified. There there's a an excerpt from this chapter that like the other thing about it just helps illustrate the writing style. Like this is one of the few books where I read where like, I'm actually like laughing out loud at, at points and um, not just typing LOL, but like I'll, I'll chuckle at, at the very least. And like there was the line and I was able to find it again really easily because it stands out so well in my memory where he's banging his head on the wall. Cause he's annoyed at the experimental results. And then it's, so it says Hermione wasn't laughing, but he could feel her intent to laugh radiating out from behind him like a dreadful pressure on his skin, sort of like knowing you're being stalked by a serial killer, only worse. And then he says, say it. And she says, I wasn't going to. It didn't seem nice. It didn't seem nice. <laughs> and what I like about that is like, it's hilarious. And it's also super relatable. Like, you know, we, we know exactly what he's talking about, about the person who like, you know, is like wanting to give you a hard time or make fun of you or something. And you know, in a good natured way or something or not or whatever, but it, it's the, I, I don't know it, that helps like really, um, uh, key me in with the character where I can relate and like, Oh, I know exactly what you're feeling when you describe that sensation. And, uh, yeah, I didn't have much more to add cause I was finding that quote. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the rest of that chapter is, like him and Draco uh, doing the um, like, where's magic going, kind of uh, experiment. Yeah, so that is. Oh, yeah, have they gotten to the the Draco torture part yet? That's that comes. That comes after that, that. and it's a very mm-hmm. uh, nice contrast between showing the his relationship with Hermione and switching to his relationship with Draco because his relationship with Draco is a lot worse because there is a gigantic. Uh, wedge between them that Harry isn't really uh, letting on that like that exists because he's explicitly like very he, he super downplays like his act- his true feelings about stuff like the Death Eaters because he has this very explicit plan to because he can't really be friends with uh, someone with Draco's beliefs long term like there's no there's no road to continue being his friend without him like changing completely uh, so he really like a lot of his uh, scenes with Draco are just a lot of like verbal fencing of just uh, trying to keep Draco along this path that he's set and trying to uh, uh, you know get him to change his beliefs and just show him uh, why they're mistaken and also like trying to get him to not figure out like what's happening. Yeah, there's there's a lot more like deception involved especially in their early relationship in their early relationship dynamic where uh harry's being partly genuine with most of their conversations and that's the best you can say about yeah he, it. Ch- he changes um, his words a lot with draco oh yeah I, I i liked that a lot too and that that really came out to me on this reread like i mean it, it's it's obvious if you're not skip you know binge reading the book but it that's usually how i consume it but yeah like the that he he very much uh like you said suits the tongue to the audience for um whoever he's talking to like and and like the way he's pitching science and like this seductive kind of like oh yes you'll get all this power and it'll be really cool and it's like okay are you being weird on purpose it's like yes actually i'm trying to seduce (laughs) somebody into science and um it it works really well especially when you realize he's doing it on purpose yeah 
Yeah, we're about the, due to come back to that whole dynamic that's been kind of sitting on the back burner for many chapters. Yes, indeed. Yeah. The next episode we're doing is just a Harry and Draco one, so that'll be yeah, a lot of fun. The biggest uh, thing that I I can really talk about these uh, these chapters is I do have an appreciation for, uh, on the same level as I do the army battles, uh, where I just really admire like how intelligently uh, Harry is moving and just kind of the the back and forth of seeing from Draco's point of view and recognizing like what uh, Harry's trying to do. Like when Draco tries to prod him on his really suspicious, uh, generous gift towards Hermione, he responds with, uh, uh, well, like you've already figured out why, of course. And then Draco gets too prideful to admit that he hadn't. And that, and t- that line of conversation shut down like that kind of stuff. Yeah. That definitely stands out for me too. It's perfect. Cause then Drake was like, well, he hadn't, but now he couldn't say that he hadn't. And it's like, of course he couldn't, because I knew that that's what, you know, that's exactly what you would think when I said this. Draco wow. thinks he's hot shit, but Harry just completely takes him for a ride. Even though, like, he yeah, really just... rushes things, and and we, we might talk about that, but he, like, like this started as, like, Draco being basically aware that he's trying to tempt him uh, away from his, away from, the, like, the Death Theaters, but, like, but he, he still couldn't ignore it, and he still wanted to try to tempt Harry, and that's not, that's not, that's not working. That's not gonna work. Harry is just uh, Harry's just a lot smarter than you are, and he also has uh, the very excellent advantage of like all he the way he uses to things he uses to persuade are like pointing at reality and not allowing Draco to look away. Because like if he if Harry was wrong, all of this would fall apart, and that's the most persuasive part of it is because it's true. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. That like and. It, it's almost really easy to forget in hindsight because it's so obviously was never going to work. But like Draco in the early books or in the early book uh, is trying to like seduce Harry to the dark side. And he's like, OK, yeah, sure. I'll let Harry think that he's that he's he's going to be tempting me away. But really, I'm going to just work my way in with him. And that was never going to work. Um, yeah, or even more even just like sees Harry as a <clears throat> like he's a valuable item. So I need to be in control. And he also it. really likes Harry. Like, like a lot more yeah. than he's willing to admit later. That was one of the things I really liked about talking with Matt Freeman. And I think that he totally sold me on it that like Harry's goal to redeeming Draco was like an afterthought. Um, like yeah. it, it wasn't, uh, I mean, when they, like they met and they got along and they bantered in the robe shop and he's like, this kid gets it. Like at that point, he's like, I want to be friends with him. And then he learns that he's the son of the, you know, this noble house that's, you know, fighting the game board on the wrong side and all this and that. And he's like, okay, cool. I can, uh, to be friends with him, I will redeem him to the, to the light side of the force. And it's... It's like the excuse he comes up with after the fact. Yeah, and it, and it's true. He is going to, he's, he's going to try and do that. But it's like, uh, just the... I, I guess I was sold, uh, like I said, by what Matt said, that um, he, his real thing was like, I want to be friends with this kid. He's dope, right? Yeah, and his ethics wouldn't allow him to be friends with a person with like basically i'm just gonna say like a racist nazi uh terrorist that the death Eaters are like i can't like i cannot possibly be friends with you like if you're gonna be like that so the only like the only route forward is me completely tearing you away from that and like he does he does also believe that like draco will be better for this right and and like you said there's also the main benefit that it turns out that he's right um, like reality is more like what Harry thinks it is than like what Draco thinks it is. Um, if, if the, 
I, I don't know how they could have confirmed this exactly experimentally, but like if it did work out where there was some, you know, uh, deep state muggle-born conspiracy to destroy magic and they were sucking it all away and this and that, um, I can't be sure that Harry would jump on the death bandwagon and like, all right, cool, we do have to gently exterminate all the mud, all the mudbloods or something. But, um, you know, he certainly wouldn't do it with the with the vicious yeah. hatred of a racist. Yeah, the big, the big cornerstone is just, like, the utter lack of empathy that I, I don't think, like, even if uh, the truth of things ended up being a lot different than he expected, he wouldn't, like, just turn off, like, all of his empathy for other human beings. Like, the like the fascism of the Death Theaters, like, absolutely requires. Right. And like you said, straight-up terrorists, too. I mean, the... Um, Nazi terrorists. Don't forget the about tactic. that part. Of course, yeah. Uh, like the scare tactic that Voldemort did when he nailed the skins of Yermi Wibble and his family, like his wife and daughters or something, to the newsroom wall after he advocated for, like, you guys, you guys, we need to unite against him, like, as a country, not as just, like, you know, a defense department for in our government. And the next day, him and his family is, is gruesomely murdered. Like, yeah, yeah straight up terrorism. It, it's, it's, it it's makes intense. it slightly difficult because, like intellectually like i also i agree with a lot of what harry is uh thinking when he first when that during that big uh conversation uh when he's like okay i i know too much about uh human beings to not realize that draco isn't particularly evil because he is very much a product of his environment because darth vader is his father and like anyone who was raised in his environment would be basically the exact same because like draco isn't especially evil because like this is basically like what you'd expect and it's also really hard to remember that like because like uh there's a scene where he's like after the uh the trap goes off and draco's like sobbing in his bed because he he's been tricked into thinking his entire future just got taken away from him through some ritual and like i also have to i also have this awareness in the back of my head like this guy is crying because he is he thinks he can no longer become the racist Nazi terrorist that his daddy wants him to. And then, like, it's a, a little harder to extend my sympathy. But so I was I had a lot of mixed feelings running through my head while I was writing through that part. I, I like that, though, because it's like it's not mustache twirly. Chuck was too young to have a mustache to twirl. But that I mean, no, you don't like it. But it's also like, oh, yeah, a human like this is some little kid desperately seeking his father's approval. Like, oh, well, I can believe yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, and you can't like even at, at least that part of you like oh and I can't even like hate that like it's all fucked up yeah, when he you does can it, see but... like his how much uh, like his inner panic and his inner like agony as uh, he goes through all this yeah that's what I really like about um, uh, how they shape Draco in this as not just a uh, caricature of a like the mustache twirling you know evil evildoer but it's like yeah, his his motivation is yes, he wants to join his his dad's Nazi party when he grows up, and like that's not an admirable thing. But his motivations are like he 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 wants to be you know in good with his dad that he loves, and it's like okay, yeah, I totally you know even if I can't sympathize with what you guys are trying to do, man, everyone can get get behind what what he is what he wants here. It, it humanizes him in a way that makes him totally yeah. He's he's not like making all of his decisions in a vacuum because he's. Like he's a product. He is a straightforward product of his environment. And he knows that. Like there's like because he had all, all these like, all wonderful conversations with him because he knows that there's like uh, there's like a genuine like person with like feelings under there that uh, didn't really have much of a chance to even escape what he's been raised into yet. So like I do 
yeah, as I said, mixed feelings because because uh, I really, especially on this run through, I really like when Draco whipped out the torture curse. Like a lot of my sympathy just dropped immediately because that is something that Harry would never, ever, ever, ever do. Even if he does a lot of things uh, that Draco probably wouldn't like, he would never like go to that level. Yeah, and that, that's like you said, a product of his upbringing. Like you know, for the rest of us, it'd be like striking someone in anger, which he also does. Um, but then he makes the calculated decision to think of a torture hex, cast it, then lock the door, and he regrets um, it. Then think carefully a, about it later and choose calmly to not do anything about it. Well, calmly right. is a very strong or, word because he's a, he super regrets it because he does really like Harry and he knows how dumb that was. But he also wants like, okay, he's going to own my soul at this point. So I might as well, this is my one chance to actually hurt him for the things he's done to me. And yeah. But he is like, he's alone in a room, you know, alone with his thoughts and thinking for however long he wants to. And then he just like comes to the decision. I'm like, no, we'll just leave him there. Uh, I mean like the entire scene is him sobbing into his pillow. So calm is not really part of the equation until like the next morning. Yeah. Calm is more, I guess like more, uh, it like he, he resolutely decides like, all right, yes, yeah. I did, did something terrible. Someone is screaming not possibly forced to death or in the rushed. Dungeon. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> if he thought about it more, he probably, I don't think he would he have had done many, that. He had many opportunities to change yes. his mind. It was very much a, a very much a thing in anger. Like Even afterwards, he still interprets it as like a deliberate offensive strike uh, to cut him away from the Death Eaters. Because like, he hasn't really internalized that Harry completely means everything he said about the truth being really, really important. Uh, and like it's a good thing to discard any belief that you find to be false. Because like... Uh, his entire conception of truth is very uh, politically based. It's it's not like the truth isn't the real state of the universe that we're trying to find. Like truth is like the winner of a debate. Like I don't care. It doesn't. Uh, he doesn't really think of it in terms of like what's the, what's the underlying reality of things. Is like is convincing other people that I'm right to give me political power. And like that's that's one of the big uh, stumbling blocks that they go through when they when Harry first tries to teach them the fundamentals of just like he can't really understand the concept of trying to disprove your own argument. Just pretend to pretend to being it, or just pretend to be pretending. I love to be that a so much. It's like yeah. after after you understand it, it's a really clever idea because he like he smugs it up right at Draco's face uh, until Draco gets like so angry he forgets that. Uh, you can't question blood purism, and he finally goes through with like the undercover thing. Finally, like, finally thinks of something. It just, it's a lot of fun. It's the Potter method. It's very, it's very endearing. Yeah, the Potter method. No, I, I enjoyed it. And, it, and it shows. And then in like the the aftermath chapter of all of that, where there, or no, it was the Machiavellian intelligence hypothesis, where Draco's saying, "Yep, I will pretend to buddy up, buddy up to him, and then I'll usurp him at the end and take the take the power for me." And then Harry's just walking along, smiling, thinking about like. Uh, or no, because it mentioned, well, I'm getting this out of order, but the point is Draco hadn't heard the term depth of recursion yet. And he so, you know, Harry was... He, sorry, yeah, he doesn't ahead. think that Harry is that twisty, but uh, he is that twisty because he totally sees this coming. Yeah, Draco, awesome. you're totally outmatched here. I am sorry. Yeah, and, and Draco grows stronger too as the story goes on. And, and, it, and like that's what I like too is he's not just like a... Um, yeah, no one's inherently a side evil, character, and no one makes their decisions in a vacuum with like perfect information. And yeah. like Draco, like the fact that Draco is a compelling character is like credit to the writing because 
Especially making him even more evil than the regular yes, Draco. Yes, because like I <laughs> really, true. I have a deep like hatred for Canon Draco because I believe I heard once that he is very deliberately a one-dimensional character for like the first five books, purely for the purposes of being hated. That's one hundred percent of his purpose, and then he sprouts the character in book six. Then this is like completely different, and he's also yeah, as you said, he's also he's less of a like a super immature whiny brat that he is Canon. Yeah, maybe it's because at the end of book five, she wrote, she found out how to write somebody that everyone can truly hate, which is Professor Umbridge. Oof, yes. <laughs> um, it's let's, pink. I'm trying to think of... She's um, pink. By all means, jump on any highlights you want through this through the whole uh, sections that we're covering, but um, there was the one tiny Dumbledore conversation shortly after that. Yes. And of which the one of the best takeaway mm-hmm. lines of maybe this whole book, um, this sub-book, I mean, of... Uh, He's like, oh, dear me, I do feel silly. And here I was expecting you might try to redeem the heir of Malfoy <laughs> by, say, showing him true friendship and kindness. And ha, yeah, like that would have worked. <laughs> Which is exactly what the Weasley friends liked... did to him. And that's what I loved, actually, too. I don't know. If, I'm sure I picked up on that, but I'd never, I, you know, it's easier when I'm, like, talking about each chapter with somebody. I've never I've never done that with this book before. Talk about in-depth uh even like in I've, I've talked in broad strokes with the book about people but never um anything like distilled down to the chapter by chapter level and yeah they, the, the weasleys used exactly the same phrase oh they thought he was evil at king's cross so they of course they were going to try and redeem him through true friendship and kindness and- yes oh, both of you and everyone listening to this you have to keep one thing very straight in your heads fred and george are good boys never forget that it's very important to remember this <laughs> They're good boys, and they deserve love and kindness. I don't know why we either of us would ever forget that. They're always awesome. They're, they're next level yes. awesome. And this is like their first <laughs> uh, big spot in the story, which, uh, which moves on to the, I get it, yeah, at this point we're in the Rita Skeeter arc. And it's out of order for reasons that I kind of get, but it was also maybe a little unnecessary. But the, big, the main thing is Harry formulating his plans to uh, counter... Rita Skeeter's uh, hit piece, I think is the term. Yeah. Slander. Whatever. Slap job or something. But yeah, I liked, you mentioned earlier how like this, this whole book, I I keep using book interchangeably as like methods of rationality and um, uh, the professor's games. I'll just, I'll say the professor's games unless I say the whole book. When I say book, I'll be referring to these, these, whatever, 17 chapters or so, 15. Um, These 15 chapters really feel like episodic and like this one that's all out of order very much has the tv play of like earlier 7 a.m and then the next day and you know like in in white text on the screen right um it 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 does do a good job of like like the the way it was out of order was you know just the right way to hide everything you wanted to hide in a way that you could then later see the significance yeah uh, i think the main purpose was to it wanted to end with the uh, Fred and George segment, because that's like that's the most important segment. That's where we get their perspective, and this is where they, uh, um, excuse me, uh, they plan. They they start to plan, and Harry gives them uh, gives them her money, and they they have to like think by themselves and try to figure out what to do. Because uh, the rest of the chapter is a lot of kind of seemingly inconsequential stuff. Like uh, uh, Fred and George also decide to uh, get. Uh, get Quirrell involved because specifically because Harry asked them not to because they're contrary and troublemakers. And of course they'd react like that. 
<laughs> also, you think too, like if that, like that, the whole like, and then he squashes the bug at the end. If if that had been done in order, it would have been like much less like surprise. Like you would have had Rita Skeeter fresh. Yeah, in your that mind. chapter is chronological. And oh, and on the way, and on the way, and she's on the way to Mary's room. I'm not sure. Uh, what I'm not sure what you mean by that. He bumps into her. So the scene where Quirrell bumps into Skeeter is well before. We then jump back and do a bunch of stuff yes. that happened before that because it's right before she was on her way to the room that they, she's then hiding as a yeah. bug. So that that scene is like, in, uh, I don't know, a few, like a week or something before uh, the next chapter because, uh, uh, yeah, I, I believe it's right after the second story came out. And it was like a little over a week until the plot finally uh, finished and these and the big fake article came out. So, oh, I I think I had it backwards. Didn't in my he? Head because then. doesn't he? I, isn't like that conversation how he leads her to Mary's room? Uh okay. Uh, actually, no. I remember uh, in Rita Skeeter's point of view, uh, she uh, recalls that. Let's see. Uh, Amelia Bones it was like she was going to go had re- right. had reserved that room, and she was going to spy on them. So I believe that was meant to be like. Uh, like uh, at least a couple of days before the next chapter, because the next chapter, uh, she uh she gets lured into that room. I believe, uh, I think it, it's it seems to be implied that like right when uh, Harry and Quirrell get to uh, Diagon Alley, uh, he has to run off and do an errand, and I'm pretty sure that was him like doing something to lure her there. Because uh, I, I at that point I think he ha- he already like encountered her and like after she displayed a total unwillingness to change anything then he decided like okay all right let's do this oh see i th- when, when see, you- i thought because he had dropped a hint about like oh i can't even remember the specific thing but so-and-so was up to no good with some other person in mary's room or something and that was how he got her to go into the room that's that's what i thought too i thought that like when he left that morning because then he leaves harry at the newsstand and he says, "All right, I got to go set some things in motion." I thought he was going to go bump into Rita Skeeter and do this. That's right. I mean, that's that's the moment like where I have to go starts. set some things in motion. That's when he goes, when he leaves to go set something in motion. That's when he bumps into her, right? But we had that we saw um, that out of context or out of out of sequence. Thinking about it now, I still don't think so because this is the part where like he first like bumps into her, demands a retraction, and gets rejected, and then he decides. So he has he had even like decided anything. So I, I don't think that happened like that evening because he would like there was already things if he had like uh, deliberately planted false rumors about who was going to be in that room, uh, which is like, I think a million bones and like one of her interns that a reader was thinking of in that section. Like he went to, like he hadn't even decided to do that yet. So I'm pretty sure the implication is that was like a couple of days. But this is a very hmm. this is a, uh, maybe a per- pedantic point. Either no, it's, either it's, way it's it interesting. Work. Yeah, it it you're right. It does work either way, and I suppose it matters at some level, like what order the things actually happened in. But at the end of the day, yeah, it works out the same. So yeah, I you know I don't we don't have to do a chapter by chapter play by play. But I I, I want to give you all the airtime you want to talk about whatever you wanted to talk yes. about. Uh, so, the other, um, I mean, the important things of the next chapter. Number one is. Uh, when Harry approaches Quirrell during his office hours of 50 minutes per week, which I love. I don't think I've ever paid that a lot of attention before this read, but it's very fun. And uh, when, especially the part where Quirrell's in a terrible mood, he's really, uh, he's really pissed off at the stupidity of the world. And like Harry kind of like has to like weathers this uh, temper a little bit and like, Hey, do you want someone sane to talk to? And there's like a pause 
and Quirrell like thinks about it and I think he is really surprised to find the answer is like okay that might actually be pretty pleasant because this guy doesn't seem like he has a lot of friends he doesn't seem like like a whole lot there's a whole lot of other people who he can just like like sit down and bitch about how stupid everyone is uh so he's like you know what okay i that that actually sounds surprisingly that it sounds surprisingly pleasant and like i'm probably still gonna snap at you but uh but you asked for this and then yeah and the specific story just as an aside is very obviously talking about uh uh canon harry uh attacking uh draco in the bathroom without really provocation and very nearly murdering him with a dark curse that he didn't know the function of. And permanently scarring him. Oh, I remember he, uh, that I was the I thing that happened. I think so. Yeah, and like he almost he like almost kills him and he didn't even know what that thing did. And then there's and then there's like Snape like looking at him and like healing Draco. That that was that yeah, that book Harry doesn't do smart things in that book yeah and i i remember um you know like it's it's easy because we all love harry so much but like even uh like there are a lot of things that he does that aren't super admirable like even in the first book like when we're still learning about him like he basically is like oh cool i'm good at sports i'm gonna do that and then like when there's the whole thing with the troll and then uh hermione's in the bathroom or something um she's there because harry and ron are making fun of her and And it's like dude you guys uh yeah, you, you, you're like, you come into the school like an outsider to the whole world, and you're going to like, what, be a jockey douche? <laughs> I think, I think, I can't remember, it might have been Enosh who reminded me about that, but I, I was, I, it's amazing how like rosy my memory was of Canon Harry, and I'm like, yeah, you're, I mean, because then of course, it, it definitely has all kinds of actual rosiness to it. But yeah, earlier on, like he, he is kind of just like an asshole. Yeah. And it maybe just even in that one book, he gets a lot of character growth. Yeah. Which was the, nice, the focus of this section it was still surprising. is very much like how stupid do you have to be to like be in sixth year and like actually like cast a, a curse you don't know the function of at someone? Because he's like, he, he even like started that fight and like, this is when Quirrell is just like, like everyone is stupid. I cannot believe that someone is this, anyone can be this stupid and Dumbledore won't let me expel him. And I'm just really upset and just kind of brooding in, like, my powerlessness over, like, just punishing this guy and getting him out of the school before he kills someone else. And then this is another example where Harry, like, really tunes his words to his audience. And he's like, hey, if, uh, like, everyone needs a safety lecture, like, Muggleborns especially, because they haven't been taught with, like, the basic assumptions that are so basic, you don't think to even tell anyone about it. And, like... Uh, and after Quirrell's like, fine, let them die. They want to have children for them to be stupid. And he's like, but they might also take out the uh, six-year Slytherin bystanders. And then that's the moment where he like crushes the, the ink goblet in his hand, and like it's melting in his hand. It's like, okay, I guess you're right. Yeah. It burns. It like bursts into like these. It describes them like hideous flames or something. It's like dripping metal over yes. his hand. Harry is getting uh, better at yeah, uh, tuning his words to his audience instead of just speaking like himself all the time, which historically doesn't work very well usually. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That that was a memorable moment too. Just like Quirrell flexing how badass he is, yeah. and it, he's it, so angry, like torturing the torturing the yeah. metal or something. It, like that. Harry compares <clears> like <throat> the. It, it gives off like some sort of like like metallic squeal as it's being like melted and he's like he, he compares mm-hmm. it to like someone screaming because like harry like Quirrell is just so upset uh right now and another like 
I do uh, one thing that you guys mentioned in the first retrospective with Matt uh, is uh, Harry's note that like he couldn't imagine Quirrell ever hurting someone that he didn't explicitly mean to. And then right in, like later in that chapter, like Quirrell just snaps the newspaper out of his hand so fast he gives him a paper cut. I uh, yeah, I did <laughs> also notice that. I did take a different interpretation because like the re- the moment where he does that is when Harry is working through the fake story that Rita published, and as soon as he mentions the prophecy, Quirrell just, like, literally stops in the middle of the street and just telekinetically grabs the newspaper and then just, like, speed reads through the entire newspaper, like, in the middle of the street. Uh, So, for me, that was to demonstrate that, like, Quirrell does have a lot of self-control, and this is one of the things that, like, kind of, like, gets past his self-control, because all of his priorities shift to, like, wait, prophecy, like, those are really, really important and, like, kind of govern, like, the future of the world. I need to learn everything everything I can about that. And he just immediately grabs it, like, and doesn't really care about anything else until he finishes reading. Like, okay, this is obvious deception. And then just goes about his day. Yeah, it was funny. Um, and it, it was a beat that I didn't pick up on until this read through as well. Yeah, just that, like, he, oh, there's no way I could ever imagine you hurting somebody you didn't mean to hurt. And then later, ow, you hurt me. You didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> yep, this, I think that's, uh, for me, a a good insight into his character of like how he prioritizes things because like uh, a lot of his setup is like an actually intelligent wizard who understands like uh implications of things and uh, he has a lot he puts a lot of stock into prophecy because like in a world where prophecy exists they are obviously extremely important to know about or else you'd be you'd be caught unawares so i like that uh uh, moving on to when they get to Mary's room uh, and talks about a semi-standardized list of security spells that lock down the room and prevent any like remote scrying and a bunch of spells to reveal anyone who's hidden nearby. I just like whenever I read that, I remember like how much, how many conversations like Can and Harry overheard with his invil- invisibility cloak. Because that's, like, the main purpose of his existence. But this is, like, security... Like, Quirrell obviously takes security very seriously. Yeah. And 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 part of that, too, is that he he was, you know, going through the laundry list of things he was doing to make things secure so he could specifically mention the thing that Rita Skeeter was doing. Like, well, there could still be some kind of... I wonder if I should test for that. Yeah, I recall reading somewhere along the way, um, like the author was disturbed at the amount of like rejoicing that people had when, uh, I mean, oh, yeah. again, it's Reddit, it's a cesspool, uh, but people were stoked when Rita, when Rita Skid was murdered. And he was like, I almost wrote a chapter from her point of view when she realizes like how terrifying, you know, this is all turning when he's taught, when it's clear that she's a victim, that she's about to be a victim here. And yes, I put uh, that, I, th- I think he also toyed with the idea of having her, like, have kids at Hogwarts or something. Yep, uh, which, fair. I mean, I don't I don't think, like... I mean, Rita Skeeter and, like, someone like Umbridge, that's, they're kind of in the classic character. Like, any victory against them, like, feels good because they're so hateable. Like, and, and this Rita Skeeter is, like, no different because she has, like... We've seen this inside her head, and she has, like, absolutely no, uh, like, journalistic ethics whatsoever. And... Uh, and Quirrell's, Quirrell's awesome, so obviously it's it's a great thing. But yeah, that's something that uh, I, I, I'm not even sure I noticed that the ending of that chapter when I first read it. 
I definitely didn't. And that's, I, I if you remember didn't. when we, yeah, and my first read through, I didn't notice it. And I, when we were doing the episode, I kind of hedged on, I was like, I wonder if I should explicitly point this out to Brian. Yeah, I probably I should, because it's not, it's not metatextual. It, it's not a hint. It is there. I've already read. Yeah. If you're reading closely. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that, I mean, you know, cause when I, again, it's one of the, uh, pleasures and pitfalls of binge reading that you just get to rip through things as fast as you can yeah if and, you, so, and if you don't remember it, canon it's very easy to miss oh i definitely remembered canon i think and you know she even said canon, like she had a time and what? a place in the oh, Beatles about that to be. and those, yeah, yeah like textually yeah, that, without canon like those are very minor lines so like i think oh, for totally. me it was probably like i didn't remember canon well enough to remember that she is specifically a beetle animagus right so i, I yeah i just kind yeah, of so like it, discarded her from the story because she never came out again but yeah there is uh that is the uh the main uh thrust of that scene is is quarrel is like wow like i thought you had potential and this is like this is incredibly impressive so he's like genuinely like good job like you that was some great slithering if that's a if that's a word it's very awkward to say uh and like uh what was the rest of that scene yeah there was also like the gift and uh the, oh yeah, the big part is uh, when Harry like Harry is kind of horrified to realize that Lucius was behind uh, Rita Skeeter the whole time, and he is like uh, genuinely inches away from just sprinting out the door and trying to find her before uh, before she like, gets killed or something. And this is what really annoys Coral, like him like being guilty after the fact, like because the entire situation is uh, like Rita Skeeter tried to destroy his reputation with lies and slander. So he did the exact same thing to her. And now he's feeling guilty about it after the fact. And that, that annoys him. Like that is like, as I said before, he's uh, very Slytherin and like uh, feeling guilt for returning uh, the returning to your enemies. The exact same thing they gave to you is like per almost personally offensive to him. And he like, he like forces Harry to like sit down and like verbally acknowledge like, Hey, you actually did a really good job. And like this is something like that, this is something that you should be proud of, and then like and then he like even does this whole gift thing of the diary of Roger Bacon, which uh, Yukowski does a little bit of uh, has a little author's note trying to explain to people like how how big that is for anyone who loves science. It's like a writer being given the pen of like the person who invented writing. <laughs> yeah, it there's that interesting part of that exchange which I remember we had a good time laughing at where. Like, he's having Quirrell repeat after him. Yes, or he's having Harry repeat after him. And it's like, you know, uh, I stopped one of my enemies today. I am a good boy. I deserve a special reward. Yeah, he reward. gets a little cheeky I, at I, the end. He, oh, well, it's not cheeky. I think we're straight up supposed to find that creepy as hell. And yeah, I mean, there's again that whole like S&M joke. But like, take that away. It is supposed to be creepy and weird. I don't think we were supposed to come out of that being like, oh, good. Harry learned a great lesson today. Right. I don't think we're supposed to learn this that. This is not a personal growth moment. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you know, you mentioned writing in front of an audience. I wonder if that was deliberately there to troll the people who were like, oh, my God, he's totally right, shipping Quirrell and Harry. And he was like, oh, yeah, take this, you fucking All right, how, um, how, much, like, how much of the reviews were actually saying that back in the day? Because I, I doubt it. I doubt there were many. But I, I wasn't around back yeah. in the day. There had to be people, though, that found this whole scene creepy because it's fucking creepy. Especially since we know, like later, it ends with a murder. Yes. and like, and that part—that's—that's that's definitely the part that I did not notice on my first write through. But mm -hmm. and he has that whole uh, like whole stumble towards the wall, 
uh, as uh, Harry has a very entertaining conversation with the government of Harry of like vert with one side being like, holy crap, it's a book. Get it now. And the other crap is like, hey, he stole that. Like, don't 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 encourage that at all. You shouldn't do that. And uh, that's part and that's part of what decides it for him, because like, OK, he isn't going to steal it back. I can't really, I don't want to like get him arrested uh, for this. So I guess I'll just take it. And that's the that's the big Roger Bacon reveal. And then very, you know, just inconsequentially, hey, look, there's a beetle there. That's crushed right now. Wonder what that means. Yeah, it it was it was subtle, even though I mean it, it was it was right there, but it did it somehow quietly. I maybe I'm just not used to subterfuge. You know, I think text. it's probably well, and it's like it's kind of the the Reddit effect again that if he wants to have something subtle, it has to be super super yes. subtle because it's going to be you know. Group this community red. can pick up on some very small things, but also I mean also miss uh, miss other big things because it's very hard to predict what uh what part of your mystery is really easy to figure out ahead of time if you already know the answer right yeah and if you don't know what parts are a mystery and which parts aren't then you're not even you don't even know what questions and to ask. like and there's so much foreshadowing in the story you legitimately don't know if this was intended to be a hint because there's so much of it that's one of the great joys of rereading is noticing all the foreshadowing but uh anything left to talk about for the reader scooter no i think i'm good i okay uh, yeah, moving on. Next is the uh, partial transfiguration chapter, and uh, I get, I think I can see where some people have problems with this. People have problems with uh, uh, protagonists getting uh, power ups that are unique to them. This one, I can, I mean, I can kind of see it because transfiguration is very set up to be like conceptual and tied to uh, the caster's understanding because it's so free that. Uh, it's not like a specific spell effect, and it, like and Harry having a superior understanding of the universe to complete to visualize and realize that like they're not it's not like one singular object. Uh, it, it sold it to me. Like I did really enjoy. Oh, the the specific scene where he figures out the partial transfiguration is the best because. Like have either I don't know if either of you have like ever watched uh, Dragon Ball Z or know the scene of Goku transforming mm-hmm. into a Super Saiyan for the first time, and where he just, like... And this is to go even further beyond, and then he just starts screaming and powering up. Like, this is the rationalist equivalent of that. Because he, like, okay, it's not working yet. Time to step it up a notch. And, like, goes up one level of, like, science and, like, physics or whatever until he gets, like... I think it was, like, timeless physics he ended up on. But that... I, I really got... I got a really shonen vibe from that scene that I enjoyed. I get the impression the author's definitely uh, seen some shonen in his day. Yes. So. <laughs> I know he also reads a lot of, like, Naruto uh, fan fiction. Nice. Let's see. I mean, there's also uh, uh, Hermione, like, realizing, hey, we have to stop this experiment because, like, actually, wait, experimenting with magic is super dangerous. And Harry's, like, sullen, like, all right, whatever. He goes to, like, show his thing to Professor McGonagall and, and Dumbledore uh, under the guise of, hey, I had a really good idea. And after he blows their minds, and he watches them set up uh, the preparations for him trying a brand new transfiguration, yeah. and like this is McGonagall's perspective, so you can't hear him. But he's like, like, and McGonagall's like, "Don't worry, we do. This is just like basic precautions for any new transfiguration." It's like, "Oh, I am an idiot. I have to apologize to Hermione now." <laughs> yeah, that was second degree of caution. Yes, 
And she, she alludes later, or she says something later about like the, the explosion pre the Christmas battle, that the words that came to mind were fifth degree yes. of caution. And it makes you wonder what the hell the fifth degree of caution looks like if the second degree is have you both launched out of different skylights. Yes, I, I enjoyed McGonagall's segment because uh, we get to see, like, she gets really sad when she realizes that uh, Dumbledore hadn't really used his uh, transfiguration study in a long time because, he, like, she knows, like, how much he enjoys that. And there's also, like, she's very, like, uh, her mindset as a transfiguration mistress is very, like, safety-oriented. And I, I do enjoy seeing that a lot. She's a... I think she's a really fun character. She's some, uh, definitely someone I like every time I read this. Yeah, every every piece of uh, text we get in her head is just uh, is awesome. She's again, this is something I've emphasized over and over on this podcast. But I mean, every character that gets screen time gets so much more character to it. Yes, them. she was great in canon. She's so great in this. Yeah, my uh, one one of the big things about this entire book is that every single character that's like uh, different from. The movie version, like, this is easily my favorite version of this character like, I've, that I found anywhere. Like, McGonagall's great, Dumbledore's great, Snape's great, Draco's great, Hermione's great, Harry's great. For sure. Um, I, I didn't want to intrude on the the time constraint that I yeah, imposed on us. No, no, no. I'm well, I'm actually doing the opposite. We skipped past the Lysoth Lestrange uh, bit. Oh, we did. If okay. You, if you wanted to uh, touch on that. Yes. And so... you know, if we want to go a bit later, I, I can totally, I'm fine with that, too. Yeah, I'll basically. I'll I've, to... I've been in this desk for like uh, fifteen hours today. So, <laughs> yikes. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So the Snape uh, arc is, I mean, it begins with Harry and Hermione like sharing like a, a brief moment, like, a moment of solidarity where they both completely hate the fact that Quidditch scores are added to house points, and, uh, and then Snape's arrives to to grab him, and. These, yeah, the Snape conversation is very puzzling, especially on first round. It makes a lot more sense if you know, like, if you know the canon version of his character, because then you realize that, like, Harry accidentally said, like, "Hey, you know that woman who, you, like, you've like based your entire life around, and you're like, I guess you're still in love with them, like, you know, twenty years later. Like, you should really get over her. Like, he accidentally just destroys Snape." Uh, because after Snape like poses that anonymous question to see what he thinks of it, and then after, and then he sees like Harry like forgive Lasaf for calling him uh, for calling him a slur, and like Snape is like mentally comparing that to like his memory of Lily is like this doesn't make sense like I, is it because like we don't really know Lasaf or whatever? So then he gets curious, and then her, Harry accidentally like, just completely obliterates him. Uh, and he like that. That's when he gets really pissed. And like as a parting shot, he says like, "Oh yeah, your father was a bully and your mother was shallow." As he as he as he you know walks away. And yeah, that's that scene is uh, I don't know rough for him because that's Harry kind of destroyed him. But uh, I do want to like very briefly mention the scene of them saving Lothoff because Neville shows up and Neville gets the chance to do something cool. And afterwards, they have a moment of uh, them, uh, kind of a moment of mutual understanding of, like, Neville's like, wait, do you actually want to go and save his mom? And he's like, he kind of see, he sees through, through him a bit. And this is when, like, Harry kind of like, okay, wow, Azkaban is actually awful. And now that, like, Lasaf has, like, um, asked me, I, I kind of do want to do that, but even though I can't. 
And then he's like, so obviously I have to hurry up and become God. So that's cause that's a that's a normal thing to do. Yeah, it's it's like this kind of heartbreaking thing where it's like, you know, of course, that's like an absurd thing to say uh, on its face. And yet the the goal, like the the desire he has to like, I need to help these people like there's, you know, that's that's super um, admirable and, and kind of heart wrenching. And yeah, he puts it in his own way of like, well, I need to hurry up and become God. But what he really means, well, maybe he means that literally, but I, what, what he can be interpreted to be meaning there is I need to become the person that can do these things. And that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, that, 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 that can hit an emotional beat that, that I think lands really well. Yeah. It's funny. Like reading it the first time that, that was one of the things I like, I'm infamous for, uh, how little people liked my interpretation of all this, but, um, that like on this first read through, not knowing anything that comes later, this just seems super grandiose and weird. Um, and then that, like now you kind of, I mean, it still is, but when you put it in the context of like his later thing about, well, he's basically going to end death. Um, this ties into that. Um, and I think it's, it's sort of like, you know, at this point it's very, very sort of, it's like, Oh, I'm the great and powerful Harry and how it comes across here. Um, and it's kind of morphing into the Yeah, it's thing. a mix because, like, on one hand, like, Harry's, like, uh, self-image to himself, of himself, is definitely a, a, a huge part of, like, his day-to-day decisions and, like, who he is as a person. But, and he's also, like, uh, on the other hand, he is, like, he's genuine about the things he says. Because uh, his main, his big motivation is... Like become powerful enough so I can save as many people as possible because that, that's the core. Like Harry is a very good person. He cares a lot about the ethics of what he does, even though he forgets it sometimes, uh, and sometimes he loses track of the uh, the details of things. But at the core, he wants to save everyone. He wants to make everyone happy. He wants to f- be clever enough to find some situate some uh, some fix, some solution that will like neatly solve everything as much as he much as he can and like tying way back to his very early characterization like he's he's very deliberately like trained himself to if he sees a problem he doesn't want he's very pessimistic about it he he puts himself in a mindset where uh uh if i if i don't do this uh i can't i can't just hope that someone else will do this so this is why he buys a med kit because things aren't perfectly safe. And even if McGonagall says that she's responsible for her safety, like someone might get hurt in front of him or he might get hurt and he'll need it. And then he does need it. Yeah. Harry's sense of responsibility was something that I, I mentioned when he, when it first came up, when he, yeah, when he was buying the medical kit is something I, I can identify with. Very. And yeah. It's it, very strong. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is in a way speaks to his like ego problems because like he assumes that no one else can be responsible yeah. and that no, no, like it's actually possible for, people you know to take care of you and take care of people around you he's like yeah but what if they're not then it needs to be me and i i can again i can see how that's partly an ego problem but it's also something that many people can identify with myself included yeah 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 it's like it's like i yeah we're we clearly see it as like kind of fucked up and wrong but also but not in a malicious way like you don't judge him for for feeling that way while at the same time seeing like, oh, well, that just doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, like, yeah. Stephen, I remember you mentioning uh, you driving with your mother, I believe, and having plans to, like, grab <laughs> yeah. the steering wheel if she does something she does something dumb. And, like, stuff like that. <laughs> so, like, buying, you know, like, a couple of, what, fire extinguishers, I think you said. 
I've just got the one. Like I haven't I haven't upped my security yet, so I need if to. If something do that. yeah, if something goes wrong, then like be prepared to do it. And like this is something that Harry's very deliberate about training himself to do. Be be super pessimistic. Uh, think of like the worst thing that could happen, and then prepare for it because there's there isn't much point besides like I don't know lost worry, uh, like you know time spent worrying. Uh, there isn't much of a cost to prepare for those things. Like you know you buy a med kit, even you like you put on a seatbelt, even if you don't expect to crash at all when you're driving, because if it does crash, that thing could save your life. Yeah, I think it. There's there's a proper amount of being. Um... You know, again, worry makes it sound like you're preoccupied by it. It's just being prepared. You imagine bad case scenarios and you take steps to avoid them. And, you know, you, you don't do this compulsively or to the point where it's ruining your life or anything like that. But it's just a matter of uh, of conscientiousness, as I see yes. it. Harry takes it way further than most people. But that's just, totally. that's just who he is. It is, yeah, and it is tied up to his very inflated view of himself and, like, what he believes that he has a potential to become one day but he it is also genuine because he does he does really really want to help people because he's genuinely like really like disappointed and feeling guilty that he can't rescue with mom who is also a horrible monster and like he he knows it's, he knows it's dumb but he feels, still feels guilty about it and i i do think like it's like he's i don't know it, it's a bit weird for him to feel like that but it's also it indicates to me that he has a very strong desire to uh, do good. Well, he, he, doesn't like see, he doesn't like seeing pain. Yeah, the chapter is called Empathy. Um, yes. Yeah, so like, and it mentions that Harry had read about Dementors in that chapter, but, you know, he obviously hadn't been exposed to one yet, so he had no idea about how it really was. But to him, and I think to many of us, you know, being trapped in a dark room and having all of your happy memories literally stolen is a fate worse than death yes and so, so I, I think that if he learned yeah. that if, i think that if he learned that she was rotting in a regular jail cell he'd be like well no she probably should stay there she sounds dangerous but it's the yeah, fact all, that she's being tortured to death yeah all of a sudden he's confronted with a person like he learned about azkaban and the uh i think mcgonagall's first class but he didn't really think about it and then all of a sudden lasoth is here who imagines every day the incredible agony that his parents are in all the time and all of a sudden, like he he connects to Lasaf, and then he gets this this horrible sense of like empathy for uh, like the people there, even though he knows he can't like take them out. Yeah, and no, it's, it's awesome. anything else uh, left? I can't think of anything in particular left there. We'll move on. Move on to get next up is the uh, first army battle. Uh, I uh, you know what we should do we should like because the army we could. St- it would take us like an hour yeah. to get to the army stuff. We, like the, the whole army, the the entirety of the army thing is a good thing to like draw an entire circle around because it's kind of well contained. Yeah, I, the details are like, like I, I enjoy the tactics of it, but we don't have to talk about it in an analysis podcast. Uh, so, I mean, right bef- before the first army battle, there's a short scene from Hermione's perspective where she uh, approaches uh, approaches Quirrell because uh one cool thing about her little arc is that she's becoming increasingly aware that her entire like school reputation is completely tied to harry instead of like being her own person that's like distinct like she's harry potter harry potter's rival and like she says like okay this has to change and so she her internal narration as she approaches the spider in his web uh to ask to be banned third general it's very fun and quirrell just deeply enjoys messing with people and i know it's mean 
I know she's like just a little kid and you should be doing this, but it's also really funny because he does this with everyone. Yeah, it's not targeted like it is with Snape. Somehow we're not mad at Quirrell like we were mad at Snape, but he knows that it'll it'll just wreck her. And he's like, maybe I'll take your points away one by one yes by one it's like when it's like when he's like tossing the book up and down even though because he knows like how protective harry is of books and like balancing on his finger and stuff like yeah. that uh, he, he totally knows what buttons to push with people i know it's mean but it's still funny it's still it's still a little endearing because it's just it's very funny to read just this casually messing with the people around him uh, agree and uh, yeah on to the actual battle uh Again, details don't matter for, like, thematic analysis purposes. The main thing is just Hermione's whole thing and her, and her like, reversing everything at the last minute and actually having a better plan than either of them because she has the, the superpower of delegation, which I've heard is the superpower of all administrators, and that she can outsource her good ideas to her captains and all, and everyone else in her army. And that is and the part, reason that she won this battle. Exactly. And part of her plan was dependent on her understanding her enemy enough to know that they would underestimate her. Yes, that they would like, find that believable. They would, like, yes. You know, Dragon Army would never have fallen for that if Chaos Legion had tried it. Yeah. Like, Harry is like, like, oh, like, they didn't all just oh, go down. Crap. Shoot them again. Double tap those guys. But when yeah, it's Harry, their Sunshine Regiment, they're like, oh, yeah, ha, lol. They're dead. Ha- Harry thinks that she's being fair. And Draco thinks, like, it's obviously a feint, but then he, like, doesn't believe that after, like, because they really sell it. Because they all go down, and uh, both armies think that the, they've totally taken out Sunshine. And then there's the, uh, Harry, Hermione gets to gloat in front of a disarmed Harry and shout these utterly inane battle chants of the Sunshine Regiment. It's, it's really great. I, I love reading it every time. Yeah, same I, I always like Hermione just completely getting one over on on Harry, and like Harry, yeah. and Harry still does not figure doesn't figure it out afterwards because and Hermione like very very accurately says like Harry's never gonna figure this out unless someone tells him. This is just how he is. This is one of the occasions where he has she has like a extremely accurate read on him more so than he has it himself because she and she identifies that like Harry's a really lonely person who just doesn't really think of other people like that because. He's not, like, he didn't think that other people who aren't, like, geniuses could have good ideas. And, like, even though he doesn't, like, verbally think that, this is a background thing, because this is just, like, this is how he uh, came up thinking about other people. And Hermione thinks that, Hermione, like, mainly thinks it's pretty sad. Instead of thinking of, like, an indictment of his, you know, corrupted character. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you just said. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, that's basically it for the battle. I, I I like the battle because you know Hermione gets to win utterly. Uh, moving on, let me like time skip a lot to the under the the final battle of the semester underwater. It is one like it's called out a lot, but this is one big Ender's Game reference. Totally. Where he Why are you standing gets upside to down? Use, yeah. yeah, he use, he gets to use the tactics of Ender's Game, and then Draco has that line of like. Did like did Harry think very hard for a long time about uh, how to fight uh, underwater? But like, no, that's partially accurate. He thought about how to fight in space, and that's why he has all <laughs> these good ideas. Yeah, Harry gets an advantage. Uh, you know, it's I doubt Quirrell read Muggle. Now this doesn't sound like a Quirrell ploy, but if you're putting on your paranoid, you're climbing way up high on your paranoid ladder, as Brian are Brian and I are calling it in the later episodes. Um, you can imagine that like Quirrell set this up because like, oh, Harry will love this. But there's no way Quirrell read Ender's Game, I don't think. 
But if he had, he he would he would have set this up exactly like this, right? Probably not. Uh, Harry de- does he Harry's main suspicions with the game, like on top of like teaching all the kids like actual uh, combat abilities and like working with like working with a group and things like that, is to break up everyone's like self image of themselves as uh, members of their house because like the very specific like three armies instead of four because you don't want to segregate them by house and yeah. uh, and th- I mean three like like one. One VL with three teams is a little more even than, like, you know, a four-person uh, free-for-all. But, yeah, uh, Ender's Game references are great. Uh, I could, I, I remember I once wrote out a complete write-out of the tactics of the underwater battle. And just trying to untangle the plots that were involved with Sabini and uh, and uh, Mr. Hat and Cloak, which I'll get to in a minute. But... Uh, it ends with Zabini like successfully tricking all three of them and just ending the ending it in a tie, and everyone mm-hmm. is like everyone's super frustrated. Uh, and then let's see, in terms of the battle itself, there's not really much else to talk about. It's very it's just very fun, and we get to see the the uh, we get to see Neville especially because like at, in his development because he's really come into his own and like fully like I am like. He calls himself like Neville. He's like a chaos Hufflepuff or something, and he like actually gets like so the self confidence that he didn't get in the books until like book six, book five or something, when he when he started with the uh, Dumbledore's army. But I, I enjoy seeing like uh, Harry. I believe yeah, Harry's like uh, you can have this posi- like this captain position if you want, and, uh, and Neville starts fighting, and then he actually finds a lot of uh, self confidence in it. So that, that's like. That's like purely positive growth that Harry facilitated. That's good. Yeah, all Neville needed was you know a place to to exercise his confidence, and it turns out he's actually badass. It takes him seven years in the in the canon books, and uh, methods Harry is able to get him there in half the way through their first year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he doesn't waste time. Uh, and then we get. <laughs> I forgot when you mentioned the the Mister Mister yeah, and Coke. We'll get to him, but first uh, there is the yeah. uh, Quirrell speech. Is uh, I mean, right before Coral's speeches, uh, Harry ap- apparently made a wish to that Coral would be the defense, pro- the battle magic professor next year, and Coral immediately burned it up and said, "Like, please be realistic," uh, which and that really hits him. Uh, and then he promises to uh, grant three wishes with a single plot, inclu- even though two of them are like mutually incompatible. So. Uh, and he's uh, he's offended that uh, Harry thinks he can't do something impossible. You will learn to expect better of me, Mr. Potter. Yes. And then the speech. Uh, I do like this speech. Even though, like, Harry's, uh, I don't know, t- criticism of it afterwards, definitely fair. But I, I like, I think it's uh, really well uh, executed. It's a really strong speech that I, I, I totally understand where he's coming from because, like, uh, putting it in the terms of like, hey, a small group of of small group of uh, people using like terrorist tactics almost took over an entire country, and that's super pathetic. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Disclaimer: we're not fascists, but yes, Quirrell makes a like, good sales pitch for it <laughs> in yeah, these specific like, circumstances. I could understand uh, where he was like coming from, just being incredibly frustrated with how poorly uh, the past generation responded to this and. Like just not it's it's disunity is the thing that was like preventing it from having any sort of defense and 
that and I understood, like I understood that part. And uh, Harry is a bit faster on the uptake than I am because like okay, no 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 dictators. This is this is an even worse idea because uh, like the undertone is like the entire if the entire Wizarding World uh, unites, then it might be able to. Uh, uh, face an even greater enemy and there's the implication that he's talking about all of muggles and that is a thing that harry is like i don't care there is no idea like no matter what my ideology i have to stop that because the one thing that harry that Quirrell doesn't understand is if if that if like an all-out war of extermination were to occur he would side with the muggles and he's very sad about that but he also doesn't really he's he says I think the term is like uh, there was a lot of hurt around that decision, but there wasn't any confusion because he knows what he's going to do and he knows it's the right thing if that happened. But he he wants to stop that from happening. But in Quirrell, a lot like other wizards have no idea why. Like I think he misses this later that when Muggleborns join the Wizarding World, they very quickly stop thinking about the Muggle world. Because, like, no one finishes their muggle education after you got magic and stuff like that. Like, that is, uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I can, uh, again, I can really easily see that conversation and his frustration with this piss-poor performance. But, uh, yeah. Uh, anything else on Quirrell's speech itself? No, I just, I mean, I nothing that I haven't said before, um, I, I did like, like you said, the, the line where he's thinking about, um, like, it, it never occurred to Quirrell that Harry would side with, you know, those those silly, mert, you know, mud-grubbing muggles. It was going to be, uh, it, it was it was uh, not in his range of speculation, but Harry, yeah, like you said, the line is, it was a terribly sad feeling, but not one that held any hint of doubt. Yeah, I and, that. Yeah, and it comes out slowly. It's like, you know, a sentence per line leading up to that. And, um, yeah, a scientific civilization reaching outward, looking upward, knowing that its destiny was to grasp the stars, and a magical civilization slowly fading as knowledge was lost, still governed by a nobility that submuggles is not quite human. And he's like, yeah, I mean, Quirrell didn't even think to ask the most important question. Um, and that's, like, for me, that's kind of also targeted at canon, because, like, as I said, wizards in general, and especially canon, like, after you join the wizarding world, like what even's left in the muggle world for you? Like, literally, who cares? Because, like, you have magic now. And so that's why Quirrell is so, like, it's so out of context that this incredibly intelligent person cannot predict that, wait, like, you'd actually you'd actually rather kill all of us instead of all the stupid, like, nuclear muggles? Right. It's ridiculous. Nuclear muggles. Well, and they also, like, in this metaphor, uh, the wizards are the Nazis. Um, and I don't think we were supposed to take that side. Uh, I mean, in terms of like uh, uniting under a dictator. Yeah, well, and it's uniting under a dictator, and maybe the reason we would do that is to kill all the Muggles. Yeah, I mean, he frames uh, it in terms of like uh, a common enemy yeah. that's going to kill all of us if we don't uh, do something. So it feels like it's it's something more of a because he like as he says he frames it with the army battle that they just saw that if anyone if any fourth party entered that. Uh, entire debacle with a unified force that they, it would be able to wipe the floor. So, like, we're defenseless oh, yeah. if we're... Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I think, yeah. like, all of this was done very intentionally to be the, yes, that's the semi-convincing but totally scary argument that was used to justify, let's unite the 
uber mention against the evil jews yeah because i mean so we know because we know that uh quarrel despises the uh you know muggles and their their fool science and their idiot politicians and stuff and he doesn't say that part in this speech but like he phrases the speech more in like well if it comes to like self-defense you know we'll have to be ready but you know i think quarrel thinks they're already in self-defense mode like nukes already exist i i think it's not unreasonable to think that quarrel is saying uh like yeah, we should all be united so that when the time comes, the time came 30 years ago, we need to kill all the muggles. Yeah, his hatred of nuclear weapons is well-founded, I will say, totally. at the very least. Because he it's very understandable that he is completely terrified of this idea that literally everything can just die one day. And he'll, he won't be able to do anything about That's it. That's the reality we all live in. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Aftermath, like they have a little conversation... Uh, at the at his office, and and kind of they can continue like Harry refuses refuses to budge on this because like I don't like he doesn't really care about a lot of the arguments because he's not going to allow that to happen. That's what, and you know, like he had to just say something against it. And then, uh, oh yeah, Harry mentions like, hey, Dumbledore didn't seem to my, think my concerns were childish. And then that's when he takes him to uh, Zabini, who. Uh, reveals with heavy quotation marks to Quirrell that uh, he was doing it at Dumbledore's bedding who had his uh, cousin uh, bullied and said and he uh, promised him free marks and everything uh, and that that is Quirrell's like big proof like hey look, well, this is this is your common enemy this is the person like working outside the three of you uh, for his own ends and uh, Harry's very shocked and then we then we see then this is when we see Mr. Hattencloak because Coral uh, uh, said that there was a quadruple agent around, but after that, conversations revealed that he was a quintuple agent. Because there's a there's another person uh, getting over Dumbledore, Mister Hattencloak, which whose uh, voice and body is mysterious. I liked. Uh, I think Inyash mentioned it too in one of the meta episodes that he he loved Brian's imagery of the Sith Kermit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. uh, I, I, I don't know what that would sound like i pictured it more uh more sinister but i do like uh, i think that is a funny image um it's impossible to imagine kermit's <laughs> voice in a sinister way oh my god anyone wants to send in a soundbite and we'll play it next episode uh i mean yeah so the the important thing is uh mr and cloak he is the uh makes him a quintuple agent and then Zabini leaves and then he stumbles and then he's like man being quadruple agent is awesome so he just got obliviated yeah he just lost all of his memories Mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's almost subtle well only in that it repeats the sentence the exact same minus you know quadruple to quintuple and since they're both long words that kind of look the same yeah you can almost skim it but you know, I don't remember my first read on that chapter if I noticed that or not. I mean, I, I think yeah, I noticed the obliviation. I, I might have too. I can't faithfully recall what I noticed my first time on that. Yeah, because here is like... I think, yeah, I, well, I did because you obviously noticed that it's been repeated, but I didn't notice that one was like quintuple versus quadruple. But So you knew something had happened, but I didn't pick up on the change in number. Yeah, so that is... Uh... Uh, again, I remember recently someone asked, like, what is going on in the underwater battle? And then I, like, had this huge paragraph breaking it all down because it's such a mess and it's so fun. Uh, it, it is just a huge mess uh, trying to work through it all. Uh, I mean, I think that's it for that. 
I guess we can finally move on to the last arc of this book, the Christmas break. And uh, this this might sound weird, but I think these are my favorite chapters of the entire book. Of the entire book. I found my. Wait, s- do you mean the this fifteen chapters or the whole story? The, yeah, this fifteen. This this fifteen chapters. Oh yeah, that that is much uh, less contestable. Yeah, to me I'll, then. yeah. I'll call I'll call the wider <laughs> story like story or fic or something. This like this book too. This is my favorite part of book two, probably. I, I think mostly I d- because I think I agree. Yeah, mostly because there's a lot of focus on uh, there's some cool stuff of just them interacting with uh, Muggle society again, and also uh, Harry's Hermione's relationship. And when they're at uh, dinner uh, at the Grangers, and Harry gets a very defensive feeling uh, for her because her parents aren't uh, treating her like the like the the you know scientific prodigy that she actually is. And Hermione isn't bothered by that, and that bothers him. And he's like, and this gets, it gets so far, and then he, he like blows up at them, like, like how dare you, like, you know, put down your daughter this much? And uh, the, I mean, I gotta say, this is it's incredibly cute what happens next, because then Hermione like, you know, grabs him, drags him away from the table, and like, cause, and while he, she doesn't agree with anything he's like said he she also knows that like he de- he feels this like this defensive for her because this is like he thinks that he feels that she's being like like condescended to and like talked down to and dismissed um so she can't really be bad for him so so it does it does actually make her pretty happy and like this is their relationship this is the best parts of the relationship because like both of them like really really care about each other and uh uh in a, on a level like like Hermione does have like some like you know normalish friends at Hogwarts now, but uh, she, like Harry and Hermione are still like be- each other's best friends, and they like each other a lot, and it's really sweet. Yeah, this has a lot of the the nice character moments, and um, I think Brian. Yeah, this is a good way to sort of like like set the tone of like no, it is okay to just be like the regular Hermione. Yeah way of doing the, like like not like showing that like humility and like warmth to other people in a way that isn't like a weakness yeah um, and yeah like that one more thing that really drove this chapter drove home for me is that harry takes uh his parents love uh really for granted and this is a indicator of how good parents they are to him because he like it's this like uh, when after he gets taken away, is like, if, is this what my life could have been like if uh, if uh, my mother married Vernon Dursley instead of uh, uh, Michael Varys? And like, he doesn't even uh, picture the reality of uh, canon where he's like horrifically abused because he thinks like, yeah, obviously, they're, they're, obviously they love me, and like that's like as I said, that's a mark of how like how great parents they are. I mean, I do think that they should like his complaints about them are kind of valid because they they a lot of times they just don't take his words seriously and just kind of ignore them because they're adults but they do like they they do love each other and that's like a basic a fundamental aspect of the relationship that harry doesn't even think of like uh, of questioning yeah totally and like you said it definitely says something that his his imagining is like man if things had gotten really bad for me could i have been in a home where my parents were like you know supportive but condescending um like 
Yeah. Like that that's his like <laughs> horror scenario, not locked in a closet. Yeah, like he t- he takes it for granted and that's a good thing. I I I'm not I'm definitely not angry at him for doing that because he just his parents are doing a really good job and he's in a great family. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, cuz like even now like his parents don't see him. There's a very huge like shock uh because before he's the boy who lived and all this other stuff about his reputation at Hogwarts. And then he goes back to the Muggle world, and all of a sudden he's just like, he just saw a young boy visiting his family for the holidays back from boarding school. Yeah, the the transition between like the boy who lived was gone, and now there's just a, you know, a kid visiting back from school. Um, it plays that in reverse when he goes back. Yeah, it's a completely different world. Yeah. And, and completely and, different roles for him, too. He realizes, like, oh, yeah, yeah the boy who lives doesn't exist out here. This is just me yeah. being a kid. Yeah, it, it's... I really like that... I, I can't articulate the... Um, what what pins that emotionally for me, but it, it nails it. Yeah, like, the other... The key aspect of that is uh, when uh, he finds out that uh, his uh, birth mother, uh, Lily, never uh, brought a medkick medkit back to the house uh for like her parents and he realizes that like what he kind of thought of before that when muggleborns like leave the muggle world and into the wizarding world they kind of stop thinking about the muggle worlds uh partially because wizarding world is way obviously way better but also because like the muggles have like half the lifespan of wizards so they're and they're gonna they're gonna die like way earlier if things like go to their you know their average the current average lifespans so they just very quickly stop thinking about stop the thinking about the impending death of the, all of their relatives yeah and that makes that hug when uh, harry's leaving for school the first time from his mom like i promise i'll never let magic come between us um mm-hmm. and yeah and he still thinks about them and he still he still brings home a bed kit for their for their use because it might like save their life one day yeah and petunia's crying you know as she's seeing him off and it's like uh we're getting a, a better visual now into like why that is um not just because she's gonna miss her little you know her son and stuff it's just like you know she might be saying goodbye to him basically forever is maybe what she was thinking in that moment and harry sort of now harry sees because, oh yeah, yeah i totally see why she could think that because that sort of seems like a natural thing that we could do when we go off to magic yeah, he's a he can be a very good son sometimes, but that part just warms me up. Yeah, when you put it that way, it made me smile. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Oh uh, yeah, and the the ending. Uh, I mean, if there's nothing else to that, then there's the then Quirrell visits him, and like apparently he had kind of decided, okay, uh, our last conversation was an argument, so I might wanna, I don't wanna like, I don't wanna break off this like mentor mentee relationship. So I'll you know go try to apologize, try to pass things up, and like. Uh, Harry is like, like, if you do, if you apologize to me, you're going to actually offend me because I know you don't mean it because we haven't actually resolved anything and because uh, they're they're the same and then they don't really want they don't want to give like insincere apologies because that just really grinds them up. And Quirrell's like clumsy about it. It's like one of the few ways you see him being like not good at something. Yeah, because he's like, okay, have I and like when Harry says like, don't apologize to me because you're going to offend me more. Because they're like, wait, have I offended you that much? Like, th- that is, it is very awkward because like, he's usually very good with people and like socially, like social maneuvering in general and making like these really persuasive speeches. But he's like kind of fumbling around trying to, you know, have someone like he doesn't want to, uh, you know, 
break off uh, the, rela- the relationship because he he still wants to uh, teach Harry, and he even gives him uh, the one gift that he knows that Harry will appreciate, which is another uh, sit down in the sphere of stars. I like how. We talked earlier about how Quirrell probably doesn't have a ton of friends, and it's like, yeah, that probably ties into why he's so bad at apologies. You know, he, he, this yep. might this might be the first apology <laughs> he's ever tried to give too. He says it's the first Christmas gift, gift he's given. Um, I wonder if this is the oh, first apology yes. he's given. Oh, I okay. One brief, very brief aside, because I know we're running out of time. But there was the interlude of them walking through Diagon Alley, and uh, with. You know, full holiday cheer is going on, and Harry notices that like all the magical effects and like sounds are like getting dimmer when he- when Coral walks by. Oh, yeah. It's like okay, you know what? The Grinch is just a part of Christmas, uh, just like everything else is. So just let him enjoy it in his way. And like, hey, can you think of a gift to make my minions like more appreciative for me? And he's like, well, what you know, we, we, to get we put calls. it that way? Yes, I suppose I can. Yes. Yeah, he he tunes for his audience a lot with Quirrell. He probably tunes for his audience the least with Hermione, and that is why their relationship is so important. Yeah, and that's why they're best friends, because he doesn't have to, like, he doesn't have to, like, like, you know, dip all of his words in, like, you know, huge swaths of, like, cynicism, uh, like he does with Quirrell. He doesn't have to hide his true, like, ethics from Draco, and he can just be himself. Yeah, I think that this was when that's most explicit was when he was at dinner at her house. And I think Brian, you called that out too, was um, like, it seems like he's being super genuine here. And it, we get the impression that it's like one of the like first genuine, like friend interactions he has, Um, you know, he's had a handful with both, but like never like unfiltered, you know, this was unfiltered friendship with him and Hermione. And then of course that comes in more later in the next few chapters that we already covered because we didn't do them book by book or the retros book by book, but we will do the next one on time um, where, you know, his, his actual uh, bond with Hermione and talking about like the, the importance of the, that, that friendship, that sincerity is really there the whole time. And like, you know, they, they, uh, I don't know, they have a lot to bond over at, you know, not being able to cast a Patronus and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they, uh, they get a lot from, they get so much for their friendship, just both of them do. And it's just so nice. Like, it's one, it's one of the big emotional cores of this story for me is watching their relationship. Because, like, Harry's usually very cold. Like, even when he deals with, like, because he, he likes, he likes Draco and he likes Quirrell. But he's, uh, his warmth doesn't really shine with them because, uh, they, it, like, for Draco, he's tricking him. And for Quirrell, like, Quirrell's, like, super cynical and he has to and he has to he uh i don't he changes his words to appeal to that sometimes if he's trying to convince him of something but with hermione there's very little pretense like he's just a really really good friend because uh he's finally found a peer that he can be himself around totally and hermione doesn't have to be like uh doesn't have to be super nice to him either right both both of them can be themselves yeah i like that a lot um I do hate to call it because I am having a great time. Like I said, it is just getting late. I'm not sure what time zone you're in, but it's almost 10 o'clock here. So uh, yeah. since I'm secretly 87 years old, I am need to wrap up or get some <laughs> dinner and go to bed. So yeah. uh, in summary, uh, any like summary, summary thoughts of the whole thing? I was going to ask you that. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, for me, like, again, I think this is one of the uh, least interesting books because it doesn't have 
uh, a lot of the because the first week at Hogwarts arc of book one is just uh, a much more standout arc than anything in this book. And this book is a lot more episodic than usual. But as you said, we've been talking for two and a half hours now, and I still have a lot to talk about because there's still like even even at its like least interesting, like methods is extremely good for me. It is right up my alley. It has created it has created the alley in which I enjoy it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, someone should do a podcast about this thing. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I, I, I we'll mm. we'll have to find another time to do this because this was a really good time, and I felt like we did sort of have to rush the last hour. But um, yeah, yeah, I guess don't have to talk about this book anymore. I think we got. I got everything that I really wanted to talk about. Oh, good. Well, if anyone is has listened to this and hasn't been reading your threads on Reddit, you now know what you're missing. And this is the the hasty distilled version. Yeah, uh, can perhaps uh, put the link. I have a Google Docs for the like the big master docs of the spoiler and the spoiler free version of my analysis. Uh, just Google Drive link, so I can uh, give you those. Please do. That's that that would be outstanding. We'll be sure to link that in the episode. Yeah. It's a lot easier to keep track of than keeping track of all the Reddit threads and try to track it through that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, if you don't browse Reddit on the week that it came out, then you got to dig. So, yes. um, and like, and now it's like taking two or three weeks to do each of them. So it's and it's not even close to where you are on the podcast. So yeah, I wonder. Like, I want. I I should like make a bet with myself to figure out where I'm going to be in this by the time you finish because right now I am slogging <laughs> through book two and it's like progress is slowed maybe we'll do you a favor and do the like interlude with metropolitan man in the middle of this story but i sort of doubt it but we'll see yeah give you a chance to get caught up Uh, metropolitan man like that's that's my number two for all rational fiction i love it so much it's great and it has the benefit like i said of of i think being less um in your it's easier to recommend it's what it's easier to recommend to outsiders Oh yeah, because it's it's a much smaller investment. Yeah, and also like as like as Brian said, a lot of people uh, consider this to be really preachy. And Metropolitan Man is and also uh, accused it of being some kind of like getting really off track and wasting a lot of time. But Metropolitan Man is very tight. Well, and to be fair, Brian didn't say it was preachy. I did, or I, I said I said <laughs> to put it in Brian's mouth. I've I, uh, I've heard it before. I've heard actually like the preachy isn't. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say the preachy. Yeah, I've heard. I've preachy. seen the worst of. Uh, methods criticism because man this story has such a i guess hate dumb is the term of just people absolutely despise it and up to the level of like of you know induction into yudkowsky's cult that which is like one of the most frustrating things i can talk about in my life yeah i mean at the end of the day it's a great it's a great story with smart characters that you know if you like that sort of thing, which I find that I do, then you just enjoy it. Yeah, I, I get what I understand why people don't like it, but on the other hand, I can't really empathize with why they don't like it because I love it so much. Yeah, there was like a today I learned thread a couple weeks ago oh, yes, that a friend, yes. uh, yeah, a friend linked me to it. I guess it, oh yeah, because it hit uh, the HPMR subreddit as well, um, where like, oh yeah, but what about all this weird rationalist shit and all this cult stuff? And it's just people. Uh, arguing points about something that they haven't read and points that they didn't come up with that they heard you know they're, they're rehearsing cast arguments against something that they're not familiar with which you know sounds like something someone would say in defense of a cult but in all seriousness it's like no nah, man just just uh read the story on its own terms you don't have to like 
you know, Google the author. You don't have to dig around. Just if you if you can have fun reading a compelling plot with with uh, contrivances, subtleties, and and cleverness, then man, this is for you. Have a good time, especially if you like Harry Potter. Yeah, like I very I very carefully and very intelligently, if I must say, did not click on that link and hit it promptly hit it from my Reddit feed because I <laughs> do not want to touch it because like there are already like other communities I'm in where I will explicitly not go not even mention anything remotely related to methods or like Yudkowsky or like the R rational like subreddit in general because of people who are just opposed to it on principle. And I, I don't understand those principles. Like I, this isn't me being weirdly preachy. It's like this. Just people should enjoy what they enjoy, and you don't have to enjoy it either, right? Like I don't go to the Denver Broncos subreddit, but I don't dislike people who do. You know, have fun, do whatever you want. Yeah, and Yukowski is very insistent on this. He multiple times he said like, "Hey, if you don't like this thing, please, I beg you, stop reading it. Life is too short to." waste your time waste any part of your life reading something that you don't enjoy so please move on to something else if you do want to read it please like take it as its own take it on its own terms like imagine it as a story that is uh uh trying to communicate and try to keep track of the things that are happening in the universe do not try to uh uh extra you know don't take the word of like people on the internet who's you know saying that there's this vast sinister purpose behind it all yeah, there's a a good uh, allegory that ties it back to our, our doof uh, incorporation that there's apparently a reviewer that doesn't like We've Got Worm or We've Got Ward because they don't spend <laughs> enough time talking about the fight scenes. And it's like, and they spend so much time on characters, they don't even talk about how cool the fights are. And it's like, I think you're kind Thematic of missing... analysis. Yeah, well, and you're, and you're missing what they want out of the story yes. and like what they're getting out of it. Like, yeah, the fights are dope. That's, that's part of what makes them really cool. It is not the coolest part of the story, despite how fucking awesome they are. They're some of the best done fight scenes of anything I've ever read, um, including this. I think I, it's it's without a doubt there aren't like there aren't enough badass fight scenes in this for it to even come close. Um, yes, like, I absolutely agree. Yeah, and so like yeah, they're great, and they're not the greatest part of the story. So like they're going to talk about, and it's also like that's that's sort of my thing is like it's their fucking podcast, you know if. The, and that, that's sort of my like go-to thing now like if anyone's like oh you guys should focus on this more or whatever it's like cool by all means do your own thing i'll listen to it <laughs> like that sounds great uh yeah, it's a, it's this is what we're to doing skim through the battles for me especially because like, like i also find like the thematics of things are and like the relationships and how they evolve that that's what i'm mainly focusing on i, I think i do, do get lost in the weeds sometimes uh because sometimes like it's really important to have like full context but the like as I said, like my favorite part of the of this book too is the uh, the Christmas break because of the really warm chapters of uh, Harry with his family and uh, with Hermione as best friend, and uh, the it's not like the I, I do like the tactics of both battles that are shown, but there isn't much to talk about them other than that they're cool and like like you know you have to do a good job of them. I totally agree. Yeah, and they help with pacing. Like they just sort of like help you stay kind of engaged with with it I mean, yeah there's not, i mean you enjoyed the experience of reading it but there's not a lot to say about it when you're done but that helps the just the whole pacing of everything so yep, yeah so. i agree uh, i guess so, yeah that, i would uh i would super like to do this again this was super fun i had a great time awesome well thanks for coming on this is great and once cool. again everyone this is chron oblivion 
check out his Reddit threads. We'll also link to your docs um, in the notes for this episode. And uh, if you feel like it and you're not running out of money because of the current plague, you're welcome to throw some throw a buck a month <laughs> and talk with us on Discord at uh, Doof Media um, or uh, I guess Patreon.com slash Doof Media. Find us there. And uh, yeah, with that, I think that's the night. Thanks for listening. And thanks again for joining us. This was great. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. It was mm-hmm. genuinely great. Awesome.